Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number 21, 1978's Hooper, dripping with Burt Reynolds' charisma, the biggest car jump in the history of cinema, and Jan Michael Vincent. Jacob. Yes. God, what I wouldn't do to go ass sliding with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> He always is the bad guy who gets it in the end. He's out there stopping horses or falling off a train. He never won a gunfight, squabble or a brawl. For being such a loser, Hooper's really got it all. You can toss him, blast him, flip him and turn him. Shoot him, hang him, bury him, burn him. Chances are Hooper's back for more. Run him out, cross the ground. Take a truck, run him down. He ain't easy, he's up and gone You can hit him, kick him, generally abuse him Set him on fire, we'll abuse him Heaven knows he won't hold a grudge He'll look you in the eye And tell you with a smile There ain't nothing like the life of a Hollywood stuntman Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake I'm your host Jacob Knight And with me as always is... Martin Carlson. Martin, how are you? I'm doing very well. Sub, 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 yeah, girl! <laughs> it's both uh, Christmas week and my birthday week, which means it's awesome, and we're talking about one of my favorite things in the world, Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham and fucking Hooper, God damn it! Yes. What a film. Like, you texted me while we watched this movie, uh, just something along the lines of this is such a delight. Yeah, I think I said yeah. This is it's it's absolutely a delight, and something we'll get to with the rest of you know these films is they all just have this wonderful, warm like I think you thought kind of comfort food feeling. Yeah, the bad guys aren't that bad. It's the stakes aren't usually that high. It has this kind of sometimes in a good way meandering narrative. Like you're, it's a hangout movie. Yeah. They all also the best ones of these. Let Bert be Bert, and, and well, and, and I was going to say something similar to where it's a total like let boys be boys, which I know is not a yeah. great mindset right now, but that's totally what the these movies represented is that these were two best friends who met you know years before had worked together, formed what you know anybody who basically observed them together. Uh, called like one of the greatest bonds in Hollywood history. I mean, how Quentin Tarantino made an entire movie that's more or less based on their relationship. Um, but you know, it, I would say that it culminates in Hooper, but Smokey and the bandit, the, the movie they made before this together, the first movie they made together where Hal is the director that's what people probably know them best for, right? Like that's yeah. Know. And 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 for the audience, we're talking about Hal Needham. I don't think we we mentioned. Did that. I never say Hal I, Needham? I don't think we did. Well, it's Hal Needham, <laughs> just in the case. greatest stunt man in the history of stunt working. Yeah, it's. Um, I actually before this podcast, I had seen actually during COVID, I, I had made my way through a few of his films. Like I watched Stroker Ace. I watched Hooper for the first time. I actually bought it because it wasn't available on streaming even to rent. So I bought the Blu-ray. Basically yeah, the Blu-ray is always super cheap. It's like always like nine bucks. Yeah, it was like I think five for me when I got it. And you're like, you should check it out. And I, re I really liked it the first time. I liked it more uh, the second time. 
Um, but yeah, smoking the bandit was definitely my introduction to Hal, but also very much Burt. So, like I knew who Burt Reynolds was. I grew up watching him on the show Evening Shade with Mary Lou Henner, which was really on- you watched the TV shows. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my my. I pair. didn't. So oh. I'm just saying, like, well, I, we, I watched them later when on like DVD and stuff. But I didn't grow up watching them at all. Oh, sorry, the, but no, Evening Shade. This his his old sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the my parents loved it. Um, he was very Bert in it. Yeah. Um, very charming, Mary Lou Henner. They, again, he when he's got great chemistry with a female lead, it just it's it's kind of unbeatable. I actually looked up. So we'll get into this as well, but like. He was known for romancing quite a few of his female co-stars, and not just romancing, but like being in relationships for an extended period of time and or marrying them. But like I was wondering, I was like, man, I wonder if he was to ever got together with Mary Lou Henner because they had that great, you know, rapport. I think it was later in his life though, and he wasn't in that quite of that that hound dog that he was known for being. Um, well, was he still married to Lonnie Anderson? I think he might've been at yeah. that point. Cause it was like late eighties, early nineties, I think when evening shade or right. early nineties, And they had a kid together. The, their kid is named Quentin, I guess perhaps uncoincidentally. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Is named, is named Quentin. And I was looking him up cause he's, he's a camera op. Right. Um, and, but yeah, Sm- Smokey was a, I remember seeing it in high school and I had, I had never seen it before. I remember, I remember kind of, the same way I had kind of stayed away from country music and also from Westerns because I had been raised in a very liberal family and I had written off a lot of American culture as like, and growing up in rural Indiana as like for people who weren't in our circle for dirt farmers, for dirt, honestly for Hicks, you know, for the plebes. Yeah. But not even uh, the flyover (laughs) States. Well, there was, there was definitely the forgotten America. (laughs) Fuck you. MAGA 2024. (laughs) There was definitely, uh, Jacob's joking, by the way. Um, there was definitely um, a sense of we don't, that's not our thing. And I remember I just, I'd heard that Smoking the Bandit was fun from like a friend's dad. Sure. And he's like, I think you might like this movie. And I rented it. I was like, what the fuck have I been missing? This is delightful. It's yeah. wonderful. Wholesome. And it's really wholesome. I mean, it's, you know, there's got some uh, questionable stuff in it for sure. It's, it's more of a sense of when it came out. Um, yeah, it's it's of an era um, all of these movies are very much of an era. Uh, they get progressively worse yeah. as they go on. Oh man, Stroker Ace has got a woo. Stroker Ace is. I would say the the worst offenders are Cannonball Run, particularly the first Cannonball Run has some really bad racial stuff. Uh, anytime Jackie Chan is on screen, you know you you full on get the gong and the da 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 da, and you're like, oh man. But to your point. You know, these are ingrained in American culture, but they were made to be little more than just entertainments for, uh, I mean, I I hate this term because of what you just said. Like, we are not MAGA. We do not like Trump. We are not Republicans. But these were made for, quote unquote, the forgotten America. Like the people who, you know, didn't live in New York, didn't live in LA, didn't live in any of the other major metropolises across the United States, mostly went to, you know, uh, their movies at one or two screens and like their little strip malls. They went to drive-ins, which is where Smokey and the Bandit was fucking huge. And they, you know, they weren't watching Fellini movies. They weren't watching Antonioni movies. They weren't even probably watching Scorsese movies, you know, at the time. But Hal Needham, and Burt Reynolds both being, you know, more or less good old boy Southern types, 
that's who they made this for. Like Hal Needham wanted Smokey and the Bandit to play to that crowd in particular because in sort of the tradition of, of tried and true exploitation, it was all about representation in a weird way. It was about seeing yourself on screen. It was about putting this Southern kind of archetype and, and creating this new legend for those types of peoples who, who really didn't get that often from, you know, uh, the, the, the mechanizations of Hollywood, let's say. Yeah. And I, we, you know, you watch the amazing documentary, the bandit, which I rewatched for the podcast. And just first of all, if you haven't seen it, anyone watch it. It's a, it's a great doc. It also gives you a lot of amazing kind of anecdotes behind the scenes for Bert and for Hal. But they talk about that when it opened in New York at Radio City Music Hall, you know, it, it flopped. And as we were talking yesterday that both Bert and Hal take credit for telling the studio, you got to open it in the South. Like, wait till it opens um, at drive at drive-ins and at, at yeah. strip malls. Uh, beyond the documentary, which I also watched too, um, I actually read both Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham's memoirs while watching all of these movies both to get their their kind of background, their individual backgrounds on these projects and how they approach them and kind of their mentality. And really just that they're both such great storytellers, even on the page, they have a real way with almost being kind of like your, let's say, problematic uncle who's awesome to tell, to just has lived life and has all these stories to tell you. That's particularly how Hal Needham's uh, memoir comes off, like the nicest guy ever who's just at the bar is like, hey, by the way, did I tell you about the time that I owned a fucking NASCAR team? Also, I broke the speed of sound with a rocket car with the help of Chuck Yeager. And you're like, what'd you say, Grandpa? What the fuck? Put down the cores, man. But like these movies that they made, uh, they they both have, uh, let's say, sometimes conflicting accounts of what happened. Like you, you bring up with the Radio City Music Hall uh, premiere of Smokey and the Bandit. It did not do well. The studio pulled it. Both Bert and Hal in their notes say, oh yeah, I told the studio it was me and, and to put it out. But they, they do that a couple times to where you're like, uh, I don't know if that's true or which one of you is telling the truth because um, on Hooper, Bert claims in his memoirs, that's the first time he was ever paid a million dollars for a movie for just one role. And in uh, Howell's memoirs and the Bandit uh, documentary, he says that Burt was paid a million dollars on Smokey and the Bandit. And that's why their budget was so tight is because they had like a 5.7 million budget to start with. And then a Universal exec showed up like a day or two before they were supposed to start shooting, cut a million out. And then Burt's salary accounted for like another million. And that's why the budget was so low. And I'm like, well, who's telling the truth here? Because I feel like Bert would be like, I made a million dollars. Like, this was a big deal for me, you know? Yeah, it's, um, th there's, I mean, a lot of, kind of like during our, our Bedecker episode is the films are great, but everything outside of it is also really great with just the anecdotes of the filmmakers and kind of their larger-than-life personalities that, you know, Bert and Hal both lived kind of a, a, a raucous lifestyle. Um, they They certainly tell a meta story in a weird way. It, it's funny that you said like you liked Hooper, but then you rewatched it in context of, of watching the rest of the movies and doing research and blah, blah, blah. And like when you contextualize it, 
inside of their story together, it kind of takes on a deeper, weirder, well, not weirder, but like a deeper meaning to both of them, uh, both in terms of like kind of what they were trying to do and what it even says about not only their off-screen relationship, but some of Bert's off-screen relationships too. Like you can almost write your own weird kind of meta narrative around these films. Yeah. It's, um, there's, there's, there's definitely an autobiographical nature that I think all of them that they did. Even, it's funny, even the ones unintentional with, or not, even yeah. the ones without Bert, I mean like body slam, which we'll talk about later has some very similar stuff. Um, thematically to the other films that, that obviously how thing had things he was interested in. I do want to make the, just the comment though about how that he was one of the first, um, stunt men to become a director of a major Hollywood motion picture. Was he the first? I, it, I don't, I'm saying, so. I'm saying one of the, I guarantee there's at least one before yeah. because I mean, technically Bud Bedecker was a stunt man. Yeah, that, you know? exactly. So yeah, it's like, there's, true. there's cases like that, but for someone to go from being directly from being a stunt person to being a director like this was kind of unheard of and you you watch the bandit documentary you watch the interviews with Hal Needham and a lot of the the interviewers were kind of needling him quite a bit about like uh, oh this is the first time this has happened and usually when I know about cinematographers becoming directors or or you know screeners becoming directors or producers becoming directors or vice versa but like it's rare for a stunt person and I think what he really brings to this first film and what made it such a hit is like you said, it's a pure entertainment. Um, but it also is made by a guy who knows second unit directing. This is not a film. Like he, he asked in an interview, they said, Hey, who's second unit director? He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like me, you know, and let's, why don't we start there with Hal Needham in particular with, uh, Smokey and the Bandit and even probably right before that with Gator, which is 1976, Something I believe like that, yeah, 75 or 76, which is the, the, uh, sequel to White Lightning, both of which are directed by uh, Burt Reynolds and introduce the famous uh, Gator McCluskey. Uh, outside of the Bandit, I would probably say uh, Reynolds' second uh, most famous kind of yeah, icon. His IP. His he, IP. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if we're if we're doing the 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 BR uh, EU, the Burt Reynolds extended universe, like. <laughs> Had, I would watch that shit. I, I, we have watched that <laughs> shit. But you have White Lightning in that, I believe, is 71. Then you have Gator is Actually, I think it might be 74 or 75. Um, which, to even jump back even further, we should talk about those movies because those are some of the great car pictures of all time and also kind of minted the uh, iconography of Burt, let's say, is that he was the hot charming, sweaty, good old boy who could sleep with your daughter if you if you left her alone with him for five minutes, but he could also save her from a burning building if he wanted to. He was just all-American Southern masculinity. And these were some of the great kind of AIP, low-budget uh, car pictures. And then Gator is almost like the bad boys two of the seventies. Like it's basically like it takes white lightning, which is a pretty modest little movie and a little grungy kind of exploitation thing with a great turn by Ned Beatty, by the way, as, as the bad guy. Um, and then introduces Jerry Reed to the mix as the big bad and Gator and Gator is just like white lightning on steroids. It's just 
everything's huge. Hal Needham literally sets the world record for, for the longest boat jump in it. So cool. Um, and it's such an amazing stunt. It's just, it's way too long. It's way too messy. (laughs) There's all kinds of horrible, uh, uh, humor in it. It's just exploding things left and right. It's just, it's, it's white lightning on steroids. It's the only thing I can basically come up with, but on the set of Gator is where Smokey and the Bandit is conceived because Hal Needham is doubling Bert. Um, and in between takes, he's more or less writing Smokey and the Bandit by hand on any paper he can basically find, like notepads, bar napkins, anything, because they're inspired by the Coors beer that they got on that set. On that set, um, because they were shooting in Georgia at the time. They didn't realize that you couldn't get Coors west of the Mississippi, I believe it is, and or east of the Mississippi, I should say, um, because it was quote unquote outlawed. I don't know how a beer is outlawed. It's not outlawed. So it's um, it was state. It was like state. I think liquor laws. Okay. And so I'm fucking this up probably, but I do know because I talked to someone about this, like who was like our parents' generation. Sure. That. There was a, uh, also the thing with like how much alcohol sometimes was in the beer, okay. but it was also just like having the right to sell it across state lines. So basically, bringing beer across state lines that doesn't have like a, a badge or whatever is bootlegging. You know, it, right. again, it's not like horribly illegal. I don't and think. nobody was pulling trucks over and checking yeah. them for cores or anything. But it was like, I believe was it the hotel staff or the crew kept stealing? It was the crew. They kept getting six packs. Like I'll get twenty bucks for this back. Yeah, they basically home. were stealing it from Hal's room and they couldn't figure out where it was going. And yeah, they figured out that like this Coors that you could buy for like $3 a six pack, they would go and sell for like $20 because they're like, it's so rare here. It's, it's almost like how Yingling is now Very, in Texas. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but that's where Hal Needham came up with this idea of like, where you know, what if it's about this legendary bootlegger who's running a truck of Coors across the country from one place to another and just the crazy kind of escapades and chases that he gets into along the way. I mean, that's pretty much the entire plot of Smokey and the Bandit. Hal apparently wrote it while doing the stunts on Gator. Um, This is one of the conflicts between the two uh, memoirs that I read is that Bert claims that he read the first draft on the notes on just the handwritten version. And it was the worst script he ever read and even made the, the comment. Cause I believe it was at the time when uh, Hal and Bert were living together. Cause they lived together as roomies 11 years, yeah, roommates for 11 years. And Bert even called Hal roomie the entire time. And he looked at him about the, the uh, smoky script and went roomie. This is the worst thing I've ever read. The dialogue sucks. There's no plot, but you might have something in here. Like I like the character. I like the chases. We might be able to more or less uh, turn this into something, you know, do a rewrite, get it typed for God's sakes. And then let's, let's go from there. Now, Hal claims, I believe his wife at the time or maybe girlfriend at the time um, typed it up for him. Bert says that he paid somebody to get it all typed up. And then he uh, got James Lee Barrett, who was like an old time uh, kind of like war and Western writer, basically helped him add like an actual screenplay structure to it. And then they shopped it around. Uh, 
he got Burt more or less to say, I'm going to star. And Burt was the, one of the biggest movie stars and not the biggest movie star in the world at the time. And Universal was like, of course, we'll make a, a Burt Reynolds movie. That sounds great. And Howell was like, only if I direct it. And they're like, okay, yeah, sure, I guess. And th- they did, but they had like, by all accounts, zero confidence. Even the crew and even Burt kind of cops to in the documentary is like, and I wasn't 100% sure if he could do it. It's really knowing the behind the scenes stuff and knowing about just that this is Hal's first film. Watching it again, I've probably watched this movie 20 times because this this became kind of a, a Saturday afternoon movie for me for a long time. Sure. It's just it just a really it feels really great. So, you know, you, you open a beer, you hang out, it's an hour and a half. It moves really think I think pretty well. There's some sluggish parts, but it's actually a pretty competent piece of filmmaking. I mean, especially the way it, it ends up being cut together pretty well. Um, yeah. And especially you could tell this is directed by a guy who knows stunts. Like this, the action scenes are put together really well. Like there's a good pacing to it. There's like, they get the, they get the coverage they need. I don't know if it, it feels like very, as an, as an action film, very well cuts too. Well, and the way Bert tells it too, is that how was so efficient with how he shot too, is that he didn't approach any of it with like, this is how it's going to be artfully portrayed or anything. It was just, boom, you set up the camera here, car comes from here, get that. Okay, next setup. And he said that he would, you know, on average, you do like three to four pages, maybe a day when you're shooting. How would do like 15? You well, they had, they had 30 days to shoot this thing, yeah. which is insane. Like, it's crazy for a movie with this amount of stunts yeah. at that time. Like, but he, obviously, he was so efficient that he just got so much coverage that they were able to actually put this movie together in a way that became not only coherent, but iconic. Um, the only thing I will say is that, yeah, the stunts are great, but this movie floats on, like, basically one thing, and that's Burt... And Sally Field's relationship. And Jerry Reed in the back, too. And Jerry, well, Jerry Reed was, this was who, uh, how originally wrote it for. It was supposed to be Jerry Reed as the bandit. And he becomes Snowman, his right-hand man, the, the, the big rig driver with Fred, m- possibly my favorite character, the big basset hound dog who just hangs out by the dashboard the entire time. But yeah, apparently Jerry Reed, who obviously legendary writes Eastbound and Down and all the music for the movie, um... Like he was supposed to be the bandit. Like that's that's who he was. And it's funny because I did not know that until you just said that. I can totally see him. It would have been obviously a very different movie. Um, well, because it wasn't originally. It wasn't going to be a Universal picture. They were going to make it with AIP as like a low budget, you know, six hundred thousand dollar drive-in thing. And that's the movie you get Jerry Reed to star in. You know, it's it's funny when you said that because thinking about this era. Of, of film of the late seventies into like the early eighties and the death of the new Hollywood into what became, you know, the kind of big eighties, the blockbuster eighties was turning B pictures into a with a budgets. I would put smoking day band in the same category as star Wars. I mean, it's a little bit star Wars yeah, and Jaws sure. of like you're, you're giving this is, this would be a drive-in movie for like made for like $500,000, you know, for AIP, that has been given while only five and a half million dollars. That's quite a bit of money for this kind of movie. You know, obviously a lot went to bird. It sounds like, but you're, you're giving it a movie, like a real Hollywood kind of treatment. Oh, 100%. You know? Yeah. I mean, without Bert, if this was the Jerry Reed 
you know, starring Smokey and the Bandit. Like it would be like one of those cheapy, like redneck exploitation type things yeah. called like uh, like Black Oak Conspiracy. I don't know if you ever saw that one or Macon County Line. Moonshine Express. Moonshine Express, yeah. stuff like that. Um, but it was during the time when uh, trucking and everything was, was very romanticized because in, I don't know if it's, yeah, it's, it's Hal's memoirs. He says he brought it to Universal and was like, oh, I want to make this with Bert. And they said no at first and offered him Convoy, the Sam Peckinpah movie. Wow. Which, I mean, again, makes sense when you think about it in hindsight, but he really pushed and Bert apparently pushed for it too. That was like, no, it's basically smoky or nothing. Well, and this is, I mean, I'm not a big Convoy fan. It's not my favorite Peckinpah. It's a bad movie. By all accounts, I think at least partially directed by uh, Christofferson because Peck and Paul was so drunk. It's messy. And there's something though that I think, I I think it makes sense why Bert also chose, you know, between those two projects chose would say, let's do Smokey is that a through line. You'll see a lot of these, these films with Bert and, and, and how working together is a Bert's playing Bert, but Bert's also playing a celebrity in the movie. Right. He creates like Bert does well in these parts. This Hooper stroker ace, um, cannibal run. Even he has a history. Right. JR is known, but it allows him to really play into not just being Bert, but also the kind of trappings of being a celebrity and, and being that way with his fans. It kind of shows Bert, how he is with his fans, that very flirtatious with the women, kind of even with the guys, very disarming, a man of the people, you right. know, he's, he's, he's from the South. Like he can, he can talk to the common You literally man. meet him in a hammock. Yes. I mean, very, um, from definitely from humble beginnings. Cause I think in that one, he's making $25 a day for his fans to see him. Right. <laughs> he's being paid by his, by his, uh, his representative. Um, but I think it's something they, they figured out that Bert knew his star image pretty well is that's when he's kind of at his best is when he's playing a celebrity inside the film, the narrative. Sure. And it also starts another thing with Bert, um, that I do want to get into kind of in depth as we go through all these movies is that, I think Bert's only as good as his female co-star, which also means as the girlfriend that he's basically acting with at the time. And here, like Sally Field is incredible in it. Like the movie really does hum every time they're on screen and you just want to hang out with him and frog while they're in uh, the car kind of, as she runs away from her marriage and is being pursued by Jackie Gleason, who also, uh, by all the stories that you kind of read or are told about this movie was drunk the entire time, had a guy on set who would literally run and grab him whiskey whenever he wanted it. And it, you know, Bert said also, he claims that he got Jackie Gleason in the movie, but later you also read that it sounds like he and Jackie Gleason didn't really get along at all. Yeah. There's a couple interviews with Jackie Gleason where he's very passive aggressive about, right. work, about working with Bert. Where he's like, no, he's a funny young man. Like that kind of, like he's kind of being very um, dismissive. Dismissive Dismissive of him. And, and, but I love, like my dad's favorite part of this movie is Jackie Gleason. Like he, every time he, he's fucking hilarious. Like he's amazing in it. All his like, 
a size of great ass. You know, the huge fat one after she takes the toilet paper off his glasses. Get that some bitch. And, and just all the like, and what I think is interesting too about the, the character is we talked earlier about like, obviously as a film of its time and they make, they make no secret that, you know, Buford T justice is a racist Texas cop. Like that's the well, way he's a caricature. He's a caricature. And, the moments like there's a, a moment where there's a an African American sheriff and there's this like comedy of errors thing, but I think the film does play it in such a way where the buffoon is is Buford T Justice. Because oh, the other guy is like super professional and awesome, and Buford T Justice is kind of like, what's the world coming to? And the first time I watched, I go, oh, and I'm like, no, that's how he would be. And also, he comes across like a piece of shit. <laughs> like in that moment, he's the bad guy too. Well, it's also another running theme through all of Hal Needham's movies is that somebody always represents the establishment to, to one degree or the other. And it's always about the good old boy or the legend or whatever wor- is just going rogue, working on the, the, the outskirts of society and is just kind of following their own law and, and, you know, Buford B. T. Justice or any other, you know, lawmen who are trying to keep him down, be damned. Like they're just going to do their thing because it's, it's not hurting anybody and it's all in the name of a good time. You know? Yeah, I do. Before we pass it by, I do want to comment on the Sally Field thing as well. Sure. Um, like she's, well, I mean, we got plenty cause we got three more movies with her. <laughs> well, she's so great. Um, in this movie, she's, she's really adorable, but she comes across, she's so intelligent. Like you said, like very witty, um, she's a great foil for not only the characters, a good foil for, for the band, but also like just as an, from an acting perspective, Sally Field plays really well off Burt Reynolds and vice versa. And you had mentioned this too, like you can watch the film and kind of see them falling in love or at least falling in real in, time, in, into yeah. lust. But then you watch the, like, you know, the wonderful after credit stuff, which a lot of these films have, you know, and they're kind of doing behind the scenes and you can see that Burt in most of his films, like him with Farrah Fawcett and Cannonball Run, him with Andy Anderson and Stroker Ace, where it's like he's being very Burt, and the women are just fawning over him. Oh like, God, yeah. He is just like, and it's not in this fake way. They're just like looking at him with these these eyes, and he's just like he's so he comes across so attractive to them. Oh sure, and it, but it's also why I brought up uh, White Lightning because they even start it in that to where like there's that whole scene early on where he's just cruising through town and those two young almost like hippie girls come up to yes. the side and they're just like what's your name? Gator McCluskey. Oh, and he's just flirting with him while in the car the whole time. No, he knew him. Yeah, exactly. From before, yeah. And he's but it's just like he's again, he's a legend. He rolls into town and any woman that he sees is probably going to be his if he wants to have it that way. But I mean, that was the Burt Reynolds way and almost yeah, uh, frankly, not almost, but it sounds like he doesn't directly say it in his memoirs, but more or less the reason that he can't hold on to any relationship. He was a guy who just couldn't be with one woman and commit because like, like you said, like he's falling in love before your eyes with Sally Field and then would later for years, decades, even up until his death would, would consider her to be the love of his life that he blew it with. And, and Dinah Shore too. Yeah, I read a thing that I read an interview with him from um, I think it was from GQ, right? The one I think I, I think I sent something uh, to you from that, and he was interviewed. It was actually right before his death. It was like 2018, is that year? Yeah. And he goes, "Who do you miss more than anyone?" And he said, "Dinah Shore." Yeah. And that was because she was much older than him, and he won his first loves. But yeah, it's but I also she was like the weird coo, not weird, but like she was the cougar who more or less trained and, and broke the Burt into this world. If you know what I mean, it's, it's kind of how he describes it and how yeah. it, it seems like that was the relationship. But 
Um, no, I think I think Sally and then Jerry just they really hold the film up with Bert. But yeah, like you said, like his energy just infuses this entire thing, and there's just really nothing better than spending an afternoon with Burt Reynolds. I mean, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's just favorite, a really easy, things. it's a super easy movie to drink beer to. Yes. You know, which takes us to Hooper. It's the movie of the episode. It's going to come up early, even though we have movies to talk about after this. But Hooper, in a weird way, is the the peak for Burton Howe, both emotionally and as like the, the representation of their friendship, because it's literally a movie where Burt Reynolds is playing Hal Needham in a, a film about a fictional stuntman, um, Sonny Hooper, the greatest stuntman in the world, who even sets a world record on screen before your eyes with a helicopter jump, um, and how he is more or less coming to grips with the idea that the world is passing him by and he's no longer you know, physically able to perform the, these uh, feats of, of entertainment anymore. And it's... It's kind of killing him. It's really um, the first couple shots of the film before you see Bert. You're seeing his his leg and he's, his scars. He's, yeah, he's got a scar on his knee, and he's he's basically wrapping himself up with um, with uh, basically gauze, right? To they to do get- something similar in Semi Tough. It's almost like the opening of a sports film. It's watching a great athlete kind of get ready for battle. Yeah, it's get ready like also All with the Spanish kind of trumpet plays in the background and everything. Yeah, definitely preparing for battle, but also like you already see he's kind of beat up. Like he, it's broken down. It's showing the the wear and tear on his body. You know what the montage in the beginning reminds me of? You ever see Electric Glide in Blue? No. With Robert Blake, where he's the uh, California Highway Patrolman. Um, oh, yeah. And it does something very similar, where it's just this cop suiting up, putting his boots on, putting in. But it's all in these very uh, close, fetishistic kind of shots, just lingering on like the leather or like his bootstraps or the gun or whatever. And it's just letting you know what you're dealing with. Like you instantly know who this guy is, but Hooper does something very similar to it's just the cameras just kind of like, here's a scar on his knee. Here's his elbow getting taped up. Here's him just adjusting his pants. And it's like, this is, he's getting ready. Like this is who this guy is when he gears up for every day. Yeah. And he go, it goes right into his first stunt on a motorcycle and you still, he has a helmet on. So you don't see Bert yet. Like they hide Bert from us probably the first four minutes of the movie, right. they, they, which is cool. And that motorcycle jump is so fucking awesome. What's his, the jump that he does the, under the, um, he goes underneath the, uh, the semi. Yeah. Right. And, and he just take he, he's all right cool takes his helmet off and there's Bert, um, and it's a really there's already a different vibe in this movie especially rewatching it like you talked about like the peak of them working together and smoking the bandit is just really really easy going sure and this definitely has more of a dramatic through line uh, to it well it still has it's a, a character it, study it's a very like what kind of there's a question asked in a lot of these films. You know, similar to a question that happens in Stroker Ace um, of the woman asking the man, why do you do this? Like, what what calls right. you to do this? And actually reminds me, I just rewatched Free Solo, the documentary. It's that similar kind of thing where, the you know, his his girlfriend at the time and then, then wife, I think, can't understand what draws you to do this extreme physical thing. And it's that very, you know, it's kind of like Rocky. I'm a fighter. You know, this is what I'm this called. This is what I do. What yeah. I'm called to do. 
And so they're, they're really, I mean, they get into some dramatic shit in this movie with like uh, Sally Field's dad, who's an older stuntman. There's a generational thing. He has a stroke, definitely because of the things he's done in the past. There's not always joking about his addiction to pain pills, the shots. Well, it almost ends their relationship. Yeah. She says, if you won't quit and you won't get off the, the pills and everything, like you just, you're not the same person you used to be because this has just taken its toll on you. It's so, it really goes dark, but it also never goes so dark to forget what the movie's there for, which is to show a Burt Reynolds good time. Like, it really does have a good balance of, he's a good actor. Like, he actually can do dramatic chops. Like, I don't don't think he ever got enough credit. I think he wanted that, it sounds like, from the interviews, to be seen as a dramatic actor. You watch Deliverance, he's the best actor in the movie, in my opinion. I think he's fantastic in it. And he's so just like, he brings it like he, he holds that whole movie together. Well, it's um, that, and we'll, we'll get into this more and more as we kind of go along, but the, the, his deliverance role. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that's pre Hal and Bert, yeah. frankly, them working together. Um, post th- post friendship. Cause they already met in on Riverboat. Yeah. They already but knew yeah, each other, but, but it's before they're making correct, movies. Correct, say. Yeah. Um, but like that's smack dab in the middle of when Bert's really rising to fame. And that was going to be seen as the movie, uh, that he was supposed to get uh, a nomination for, but he does the Cosmo spread yep. where he's the the naked on the bearskin rug. It's now an infamous photo shoot. For the first male spread. And they're saying, well, he even kind of claims that that's the reason he didn't get nominated for that um, because nobody could take him seriously. They were like a serious actor wouldn't, do this. They wouldn't pose nude and Cosmo. They would like, it just wouldn't be a thing, you know? And I think that it, there is some truth to that thinking, Yeah, but I think it actually speaks to something deeper inside of Burt Reynolds, uh, that I I do want to get to as we kind of go further and further on into these movies is that Burt has, I think he's one of the greatest movie stars of all time who also was his own undoing most of the time, because I don't think he ever knew how to balance his sense of pretentiousness because he really did want to be a Brando type. Like he was even originally cast because he looked strikingly like Marlon Brando. Doesn't he even play him in a Twilight Zone episode in one point? He's supposed to be... His character is not. His name is Rocky. I he's think he's playing is, Brando without he, playing. But Brando. he even has like this. Like he's dressed like Brando. They he's, like he's even doing a little bit type. of. Yeah. He's in a little bit of the the mumbling. Yeah. In that scene, like the that, modern actor, because it's the one where uh, the ghost of Shakespeare shows up. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. And he uh, he always wanted to be serious, but at the same time, like he always wanted to be goofy and charming, and he, like they even said like he was more popular from the talk show circuit than he was from his actual films. Just because like, if you got Burt Reynolds on your show, that meant like instantly both people were going to tune in and they were going to have a good time. Cause he was going to do something weird or funny. And like, he never crossed the line. He never offended anybody. It was just, he was always there to be the guy having a good time, but I don't think he could ever reconcile one with the other 100% because like this would come up throughout his career time and again, is that like, you know, uh, a great example to take it back to, to white lightning and Gator. This is something we were kind of texting back and forth while we we're watching these movies is that he almost was bond. 
Like yeah. he was almost James fucking Bond after George Lazenby flaked out during On Her Majesty's Secret Service and went full beatnik on everybody during the press tour. Is that all of a sudden Eon and the Broccoli's were like, "Oh fuck, we got to replace this Australian model. We he's totally not going to be at like the next Connery for this run of films for however long we do them. We should get Bert this this incredible almost like mercurial American movie star and Bert claims that he turned it down because he didn't think Bond could be an American, but I don't 100% buy it. I think Eon more probably passed on him is the other version of that story too, because I don't know why you turn down Bond and then create Gator McCluskey. It almost feels like a direct call and response to it, to a certain degree of like, okay, cool. Fuck you. I can't play your British icon, but you know what? Uh, I'll go mint my own down South icon of car racing and, and moon shining and everything. Um, because it, it's just, it, it doesn't feel like a coincidence. Let's say. Well, and then you and I talked about this last night. Um, we were hanging out is that it, they definitely talked um, and discussed because we were talking about Diamonds Are Forever and is Live the and, Vegas Bond. Is Vegas Bond and then also Live and Let Die are both American based. And Live and Let Die is a fucking it, is it, a Burt Reynolds, a Burt movie. Reynolds movie. It has uh, the the sheriff in it. Yeah, um, J W Peppa. Yeah, who is straight <laughs> up feels like a precursor to uh, Buford T Justice. Yeah, it's it's what's well, funny is I always like when I whenever I say Buford T Justice, I have to stop and think because. J.W. Peppa always pops in my brain. Or Buford Pusser from uh, The Walking Tall pictures, All, too. Also that. Well, because um, Living Let Die is my favorite Bond movie. and Really? I, yeah, hands down. Um, I just love how schlocky and ridiculous it is. And the, the but I like it a lot, but I also think it's problematic. Oh, it now. is. No, and in no way would I like show it to like a group of kids. Um, but I love, I love J.W. Peppa because he's like, Secret agent on whose side? Yeah, like, he's, he's borderline some, brain damage. He's got some great, you know. A lot yeah. of Bond fans consider him to be the worst thing that Bond ever produced. Well, it's funny. He's one of my favorite things. Like that's what I love about Bond. But anyway, no. But we, we talked about how they definitely at that point were like, okay, we need to have more American set stuff. They were probably trying to grab more of the American audience. There was more action scenes like that. I mean, obviously a Gator-esque long boat chase. One of the best action scenes in a Bond movie sure, is the, is the Bayou boat chase and live and let die. So there was definitely like a, a, a constellation of events. Which Gator would one up. Right. There, but there was some stuff like connecting, you know. No, but I mean, it, yeah, I, it's saying. just keeping with the theory of like, it's, it's also crazy that Gator one-ups the, the live and let die boat chase by having the world record boat jump. Like Burt Reynolds took all of his failures or perceived like snubs <laughs> very personally um, and would throughout his career to where there, there's some direct like call and response type stuff that you watch that, that sticks out to you. But back to Hooper, um, what are the, I think the establishment in this movie as we kind of were talking about, is represented by the director of this film, who's more or less Peter Bogdanovich. Like, Needham even says he modeled him after Peter Bogdanovich because I guess they worked together. He and Bert worked with him on Nickelodeon, the, the old oh. television show, and he just called him just an insufferable prick the entire time. But I read the interview with Bert earlier today, 
in like his last year of living. And I think he said, I would like to work with Peter again. He said along the lines that he was difficult, but like I would have like, he was, he, they said he was really smart. Hal had no time for him. Yeah. Well, I can see, I mean, if I had to imagine two more opposite people on the planet, Peter Bogdanovich and Hal Needham are pretty much, they're very. Well, if we're talking about like slights and, and kind of perceived, like let's say condescension almost is like, the way Hal tells it is that there was some hot air balloon stunt that he had to do for the Nickelodeon episode that they were shooting. Um, he more or less told Bogdanovich, like, hey, man, there's there's not a thing in the because it was something about how you had to basically turn the the hot air balloon on a dime. And he was like, look, for in order for us to do this, I would have to construct a fan because these things move by fucking hot air. It's in the name like we just can't do it. And Bogdanovich more or less was like, you dumb hick, figure out a way to do it. I don't have time for this and walked away. And how Needham pulled it off. He built a fan and basically created it so that he could do the stunt <laughs> on screen. But was like, I never forgot how like horribly he talked to me and just talked to me like I was a fucking idiot the entire time. Which I mean, let's face it. Even Hal, it's one of the, I think one of the more lovable things about his, both his writing and his movies, he's again, to where Bert had pretension, there was zero pretension to Hal Needham. He just wanted to make movies that made you laugh, that you got excited during the car chases, you liked when the pretty people kissed, and then when it was over, you went home, you're like, oh, that was a good time. Oh, you know, I told my friends and they went to the drive-in next week. You know, that's all he wanted to do. Yep, and I think Bert, Obviously, we talked about wanted to do more, and especially after that, you know, he on the Bandit documentary, he tried to do like a musical, and he tried to do more serious work, and like he, he said, he it's hard to reconcile both sides of his star image or his desire to be this like still this Brando esque actor. And Brando was still around, <laughs> you know. Oh, sure, <laughs> it was still one of the biggest actors in the world. Well, and the other thing too is that his his relationships would obviously uh, start to more or less evolve during these Hal Needham movies because Hooper feels like when you're at the peak of not only uh, Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds relationship, but this is like Sally Field and Burt Reynolds, like they're together. Like he's helping her with like Sybil and, and like in his memoirs, he's talking about being with her when she felt like she was slighted for Emmys and things like this. And really was like trying to bring it and prove herself as an actress because you know, he had to convince Universal to even let her in Smokey because the only thing anybody really knew her for was the flying nun. Yeah. And they were like, this girl, like... The, the, Which isn't sexy. Yeah, the female lead is supposed to be sexy, whatever. And Burt Reynolds is like, I'll tell you, this woman is sexy. Like, he even says it in the documentary as an old dude. And you're like, Ugh. But, like, um, you could see him saying it at the time to an executive being like, fuck you. I want her to be in it, which would be a running thread throughout all their movies together. But here in Hooper, like you feel the same with Smokey. You feel them falling in love here. It feels like you're kind of just dropped in with a domestic couple while they're just working things out, figuring the next stage of their life. And they just, there is nobody else for them. And it's, it's quite wonderful. It's, it's really it's again, one of the more dramatic things that Al and he ever did um, together is the, the realism of like when you're in a relationship that long, she's like, I don't even know why I'm still here. Like this, basically this ruined my dad's life in a lot of ways is ruining my dad's life. And you want to keep doing this. Why? You know? Um, And it very much is that, you know, know, work or love 
kind of kind of dichotomy that you find in Michael Mann or pretty much any American cinema. Well, you know, to of, bring it back to the sports film thing is that it feels a lot like it, again, odd comparison, but do you remember any given Sunday the, yeah. the Oliver Stone movie? Well, the whole Dennis Quaid character where he, uh, I think his name was Cap Rooney in, in, any given Sunday, but he's the aging quarterback who's had too many concussions. He, his knee shot. And, um, I think it's Lauren Holly plays his wife in it, but she's trying to talk him out of retiring, becoming a commentator and everything. But it's the same type of dynamic of like, look, you've gone as far as your body can take you in this very physical, very harsh world. There are still options for you. And to me, that's part of what Hooper is about is that, you're watching Hal Needham reckon with the idea that his body can't do what it could do at 24 when he's coming out of the army because he was like an airborne jumper and everything during the war. Like he was, and he grew up as like an Arkansas sharecropper. Like his entire life was based around what he physically could do with his body. His body was his instrument. And then it was like, oh shit, you're entering like your late 30s and early 40s. You can't fall off of fucking horses. You can't bull, do the bulldog anymore. You can't jump from helicopters. What do you do? Well, you've been around film sets for this long. Why don't you direct now? That's like the that's like the the sports commentator like uh, uh, analog in this movie is that it's like, well, what do you do? Well, I make all the money I can for this one last you know uh, record-setting jump, and then I, I ride off into the sunset like a cowboy. Uh, and there's something really touching about that. Also in the, the good natured way that the movie kind of comes together by the end, because in between all of this, this very almost, we were almost making it sound like a melodrama to a certain degree. And it's, it's still pretty light the very entire light. time. You kind of have to dig for a lot of this, but like you feel the emotion when it does hit. But in between all of this, he's blowing up buildings. They're they're doing a Bond homage where he's you know Bert's jumping from a helicopter in a white tuxedo. Yeah. That end sequence where they're like buildings are just exploding around people. Like it's it, it feels like a dude because Smokey was so huge and made over three hundred million dollars was only beaten by what Star Wars at the <laughs> box office, I believe. It was the second highest grossing film of all time. At that point. Yeah. And I think Star Wars was the only one that yeah. beat it. So it's like, here's these guys who, who just inexplicably made one of the biggest movies of all time. They've been given the keys to the kingdom to a certain degree. So they make this autobiographical movie. That's almost like a love letter to one another becomes like a fun house for them to where they just keep coming up with set pieces after set piece. And like blowing more and more stuff up to where his imagination's just out there. Like that's what it is, you know? Well, it's something that, you know, we'll see in a lot of these films you, that you basically just got to is the, you know, the, the, the theme of getting older and the, and the fear of getting older. But there's there's the young buck played by J. and Michael Vincent, you know, who represents the next generation of stuntmen. And they even say, um, I think it's Bert uh, says at one point, so he's like, hey, these, these kids, he's like, they don't do drugs. They don't drink. They don't they don't take pain pills. Right. It's. A, they're still too young and they're good, but you know, Bert's like, I, it's the new generation of like they're healthy and like they're going to do it better than us. They don't and booze. They, they don't, don't. They don't party. Yeah, and I and I'm 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 all broken down. Um, but I I mean I agree that and it's something that you know that I like about these films. It kind of gets back to even to smoking the bandit and the rest of these films is even when there's like 
conflict or a bad guy, a lot of times, like, it is completely fine by the end of the movie. Like, they really... Yeah, they, he, they, and, he and Jan Michael Vincent decide to do the stunt together and, and pull it off. And it's really surprising, because in the film, like, you really expect... Like, the first time I watched it, I said, oh, man, like, Jan shows up, he's gonna be a little prick, and, like, he kind of isn't. Like, they let him into the fold, like, pretty quickly. No, it's the director who does everything. He, he like, kind of goes, oh, I want... Because his name's Ski. Ski. Right? He's like, oh, I want him to do it. And Ski's kind of like, ah, I guess. Like, can Hooper come? You know? Like, well, because Bert brings him in first. He's like, I'll yeah. give you a chance because they're all drinking together. And it, it just, like, we talked about when we were texting when I was watching it again. It's just... It's so good-natured. It's so welcoming. It really makes you want to spend time with these people. And... You know, for an action director who was a stuntman, he really creates a pretty consistent atmosphere, sure. like an environment of this like playfulness. And a lot, again, a lot of that does come from Bert and like Sally and the other actors. But it's really well put together, I think, in terms of that just playful vibe and just like this is this like you said, this funhouse mentality of how they live their lives. Well, because even the movie he made in between. Uh, Smokey and the Bandit and Hooper, which is this this little almost like cartoonish western called The Villain, uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Kirk, uh, Douglas. Kirk Douglas and Anne Margaret, and it's literally almost like a Roadrunner cartoon to where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Anne Margaret, like he literally put, they're all playing archetypes without actual names. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is playing a guy named Handsome Stranger who's in this skin tight, yeah. Uh, I was looking at pictures from it yeah, yesterday. Yeah, shirt with yeah. like a white cowboy hat, and it's clearly just like, oh shit, like we have the biggest bodybuilder in the world here. And then Anne Margaret, who's just smoking fucking hot in a bustier oh. the entire time. And but uh, there's something interesting about Kirk Douglas because he plays more or less like an aging cowboy who's trying to track them down. As uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is like an escort for Anne Margaret because she's like the daughter of a power, powerful banker, I believe. And he's uh, trying to get her from one town to the next. And Kirk Douglas's uh, shifty cowboy is trying to track them down. He's like the, the wily coyote of the entire thing. And it, it's so, it has the same kind of goofball energy and charm. But without Bert there, there's just something missing. It doesn't have that very chummy familial vibe while still being fun and poppy and whatever. And also generated apparently a good story in the fact that Schwarzenegger offered him the script for Conan when they, yeah, for, for Conan the Barbarian to stop shooting and he turned it down. I was like, no, I want, I want to go make these other movies with Bert. Well, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. I know, yeah. I mean, it, 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 we're all the better for it yeah. that Hal Needham didn't make uh, Conan the Barbarian, but it did make me wonder what that would have even looked like. Oh man. I mean, I want to see that as well as the Milius one. I'm just so happy the Milius one exists. Oh, 100%. Um, but I mean, after this, then you get Smokey two in 1980 and this is the beginning of the end for the Burt. Well, really it's the end for the Burt, uh, Sally field and Hal Needham run because if Smokey, is almost like falling in love, <laughs> infatuation and falling in love. Uh, Hooper is them moving in together, and this is blissful d domestic partnership. Smokey, too, is the breakup record to where <laughs> it's just you know, the bandits a burnout. Now he's a drunk when we first meet him. 
Uh, Jerry Reed basically has to, to wrangle him up because big anus and little anus. Uh, anus. And, and, you know, no, it's it's supposed to be anus. Like, that's the joke. Yeah. It's anus, but it's it's supposed to be But I always anus. thought it was penis, too, because it rhymes with penis. I always thought it was anus. Well, pick, I think but it works Pick both your ways. orifice. Yes, yeah. <laughs> But it was just Paul Williams and who's the other guy? Who I forget. He was like six eight. He's yeah, huge he's dude. gigantic. And Paul Williams is a midget, he's so, so it's funny. like. Um, but they, they need another, you know, run done. Snowman and Fred still fucking alive somehow. That Basset Hound yep. is still kicking because that Basset Hound looked rough in the first movie. Um, but he goes and recruits the bandit. They got to do another run. Uh, Frog is about to marry like the, the plotting on this one doesn't make 100% sense because frog's going to be back and, and marry. She's going to marry junior. Yeah, she's going to, she ran junior. away from in the first one, how that worked out. I'm not really sure because you got three years in between. So like you'd think junior would lock that down quicker, but I mean, he was pretty dull. Let's say, uh, Buford T justice still has it out for Smokey, And that's the movie. Uh, but it's really about, Bert and Sally realizing that they're not right for each other right down to there's a straight up breakup scene that Bert says in his memoirs, he had Sally field right. And he then in, in retrospect, cause she broke up with him basically right after, after the filming of this wrapped and he went off to do cannonball run is that, uh, the the scene that she wrote, he claims is more or less what she wanted to say to him in real life, which is that, you know, I love you, but you're not the guy for me for the rest of my life because you you can't grow up. You can't stop being a boy. Yeah, because the, the the theme of and the, the callback line to the first film is, I guess I'll go back to doing what I do best, show off. You right. Know, which is very which is smoky. Sorry, bandit, but it's also very much Burt Reynolds. And Smokey 2 is a slog, too, as a film, because it... it I like it way more than just about everything that came after. Well, I would agree. Um, but compared to the, the previous ones, what it started... Like, I texted you when I was watching it. You're like, dude, it's just 100% shtick. It's just oh, yeah. joke to joke to joke. And, like, what I like about... Because Hooper has, like, a, a through line of, like, they're trying to finish this film. There's a narrative cohesion... Um, Smokey obviously has like, we're trying to get from point A to point B. So even when you get lost, like, you know, there's like a through line to this narrative. This one is so meandering where they're trying to get an elephant, um, to basically the Republican national convention or sorry, a Republican, the Texas Senator or, or governor. Cause they're trying running. to play a prank on him because he dropped shit on their one campaign thing. And then the, the elephant is, no, is being transported because no, they basically are, it's he and David Huddleston are both running for governor, Big right. Enos and David Huddleston. And they go to the current governor who's going to basically give them his thumbs up. Whoever can basically get him the, uh, get him the elephant, which is the set that you know, represents the Republican party. Right. He actually wants it there. Okay. So Big Enos is going to save the day with the help of the bandit and the snowman. And it's interesting because I, I took, I wrote down, I said, this has the same setup as any superhero sequel, Spider-Man 2, The Dark Knight, where it's like the hero doesn't want to be the hero anymore. They want to hang up their spurs. And so it's, all, it's the Dark Knight of the Soul sequel, right? So even for even Bandit goes through this, where he's like he's, he's an alcoholic. Well, it's also like the weird uh, 
almost like post relationship thing of like frog left bandit. So he's now just a drunk too. So he's no longer the bandit without her. And he's, he's super self-destructive beyond the alcohol where he just like hates himself and he keeps like, yeah, I'm a fake. And it's definitely Bert and them kind of dealing with some stuff. It seems like, but this was an era of sequels where like Hollywood now for all its faults, like, knows how to at least give you what you got in the first part and more like Hollywood's so safe now that you're going to at least get, you might hate it, but it's like, okay, at least I got all the elements. This was an era where they didn't really understand like maybe why people liked the first one. I'm like, there's barely any car chases in the whole thing until the very end. There's the awesome big like showdown between the cops and like the 40 semi truck, which is actually very, very cool. But until then, like very, very few action scenes. It's all these comedy shtick moments with Dom DeLuise, who I love really making me work for it. He's really obnoxious in this movie. It's, um, it's rough. Well, this is the point where I started to draw the, the comparisons in my head between Burt Reynolds movies and Adam Sandler movies. Yeah. Is that, you know, a lot of people give Adam Sandler shit for basically making these very uh, disposable comedies with his buddies, often the same directors, the same kind of troop of players who come along and all act like, you know, goofballs together. David Spade, Rob Schneider, like Chris Rock sometimes Chris Rock, his old roommates from NYU, all the guys who pop up time and again in these movies. Walking sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin James. Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Kevin James. Harvey Keitel plays Satan and little Nikki. Um, but like, you know, it, I, I thought about how Burton Howe were kind of like the Sandler precursors of like, they made these movies. People were like, oh, they just like these guys. Like, it doesn't matter what the fuck they do on screen. They're just going to show up as long as Burt Reynolds wears the cowboy hat Hal shoots a couple good stunts, and now you throw Dom DeLuise in because Dom DeLuise had developed a relationship with Burt because they had made a black comedy c- together that Burt directed called, like, The End, I believe. It's it's, it's the suicide one, right? Yeah, the yeah. suicide one. Um, that he would, DeLuise would obviously be in, like, the Cannonball movies with him playing Captain Chaos. Uh, but, like, yeah, they... they Dom DeLuise was now like a big comedian and a big pal of Bert's. And like, it was just like, yeah, come down and hang out. We'll just do a thing together. And people dig it and went and made the movie a ton of money because they make cannonball run literally right after this movie. Although this is where you can track kind of the relationship stuff is that Bert claims that he didn't want to do cannonball run and how backs that, assertion up in his memoir because uh you know sally field breaks up with him and bert kind of buries himself in wanting to direct uh sharky's machine i can't remember who sent him the script but somebody sent it was basically oh it's william goldman is it william well no but wasn't that william goldman or no that's heat sorry yeah Heat heat is william goldman but somebody sent bert the script Uh, again this could be a print the legend type thing from the memoirs as a fate or as a, a returned favor because he sent them uh, the outlaw Josie Wales originally. He was, he claims he was one of the first people to ever read that script and pass along so that Clint could be a big star. And they were buddies too. They what became they, buddies. Oh, they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he, he talks a lot about how Clint in his memoirs, like talked him through stardom and how like, and specifically with cannibal run, because that's kind of what I'm building up to is that, uh, he 
you know, claims like, oh, I just wanted to direct. I wanted to make these movies. I wanted to kind of go in a more serious fashion. And, uh, you know, even when Hal went to Universal and they were like, well, we want another like chase movie with Burt Reynolds. And he was like, well, Burt doesn't want to do car movies anymore. You know, like it's just what he said to me. Like he doesn't want to do it. I, I can go ask him. And Universal more or less was like, we'll pay him $5 million to be in this movie. We don't fucking care how long he's in it. Just get him in the movie. And he's like, okay, I can do that. So he apparently went to Burt Reynolds and was like, hey man, so this is this movie. Cannibal Run, like, Universal really wants you in it. Here, they're going to pay you $5 million. And apparently, Burt Reynolds still was like, Rumi, I told you, no more car movies. I don't want to be in it. And they were, he was like, $5 million for five weeks of work. And Burt Reynolds went, all right, done. <laughs> <laughs> and, you and you can feel it watching that feel movie. feel it watching Cannibal Run. I'm going to go on record as saying, I think Cannibal Run and 2 are two of... Not only some of the worst movies from a major studio I've ever sat through, but straight up some of the laziest that I've ever seen. Because to I I watched both of these movies in the past seventy two hours. Let's say I couldn't tell you fuck all about what they're actually about. I only watched one. I refused to watch two. I, I think I, two's better than one. Well, I'm, I'll never see it. I <laughs> I really. And I, I, I tried to watch them all in order, too. I was I was trying to be, you know... Um, I did, too, pretty much. And, you know, watching Smokey... Watching Smokey, too, and, like, really not liking it, and kind of that's the, that's when it kind of goes over the hill and starts to go down. And then you followed it up right away with Cannonball Run. Is a, it's a mix you're like, oh, my God, like, what is happening? Like, these are getting really bad really quickly. Because, like, Smokey the Man 2 is hard for me. I, I don't hate it because I like the end sequence. You get to Cannonball Run, you're like... Oh my god, this is so fucking slipshod. It's just thrown together. It's the, like, it's one hundred percent their rat race. There, it's a mad, 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 mad world. It's wacky races, like, yeah, <laughs> like just the total goofball, like cross country, star studded, Ocean's Eleven rat pack type. Right down to having Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, um, Frank Sinatra shows up in two. Uh, you have. Oh my god, some of these are just so bad. I I always forget the comedian's name. But Alec Baldwin used to do Yeah, the The guy to, who's with Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, used to do like an impersonation on, on, on Saturday Night Live. He plays the Don in the second movie, Don Don, because his name's Don. That's the level of jokes that we're at. His he is not Don Vito, he's Don Don. Oh Robert Goulet. No, no, that's that's no, no, that's, 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 that's the singer. That's fair. Sorry. Um, I'll look it up in I'm, a minute. I'm but, conflating two things. But brain. it's literally just a collection. You know, the, if we're keeping the Sandler comparison, it would be like their grownups run into is that it's just this collection of very famous people. Cause like Shirley MacLaine shows up in the second one. Um, fair. He gets Farrah Fawcett to be in it because they were dating at the time. He got um, her for part two, uh, for part one. Okay. So they were right. dating before part one. Uh, I believe they date immediately after Sally okay. Field because he, he puts her in the movies and it, it's the theory that I kind of texted to you and, and was formulating while watching is that like you can see him trying to chase any kind of uh, uh, chemistry with a woman uh, that he had like he had with Sally Field and it just... Without her, like, it doesn't work. She's like the Yoko Ono of Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds. Like, after her, it all goes to shit. Yeah, and the, and the, the chemistry, and, and 
rest in peace, Farrah Fawcett, but she's, she's <laughs> fucking terrible. Um, like she's, she's in everything. She's in everything she did. Um, she was very gorgeous. Um, she's very bubbly, but like between she's her, not as bad as Lonnie Anderson. I per, I prefer Lonnie Anderson. Really? To, we'll get into that in stroke of the race, oh. but she very much is, um, you think about what a great foil, like again, Sally Field and Frog were as character and actress to Bert and the bandit where like, witty sharp can, can like do the, like the, the 10, 100, like she goes back and forth. Like she's so quick with the, the humor. She's also really sexy in her, like in her like cute way. And it works well, she's really a well. Real fucking actress. She's a, she's a real actress, a real person. Right, and it yeah. works well with the bandit. Who's like this symbol and like this, like, the superhero, you put him with this real woman at where it works versus you have JJ McClure in what's well, a Barbie doll. run. And it's just a Barbie doll. And even him with a really underdeveloped character, even for Bert, you know, it's like Bert kind yeah. of being Bert, but it's like, Oh, but it's, it's not, all it's of them funny. just doing shtick. Like Dean Martin looks oh. so bad. He looks like Lon Chaney Jr. He's so horrible. <laughs> In Spider Baby, just fucking <laughs> like, yeah, like. <laughs> you're just sweating, eyes bulging. And you're like, God damn, dude, what did you do to yourself? But like, he looks worse than Jack Elam in the movie. Yeah, he looks horrible. <laughs> but it also strange about that Cannonball movies is that it's one of the reasons that Cannonball Two is so hard to see in America right now. You can't actually no get one them. is impossible to see. Well, they both are because Golden Harvest uh, produced them so that Jackie Chan could be in them and have like more American credits uh, and kind of try and cross over. And boy, let me tell you, that does not work. Like the. I found Cannonball 2 through uh, some illicit means, let's say, and the copy that I watched had the the classic dum 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 golden harvest yeah. like intro. The one I watched it. too. Yeah, and then the other one had Fortune Star before it, which made me go, "Oh, this is why you can't find these movies in America. They're so hard. You can find some DVDs and stuff yeah. of the first one. The second streaming. one's really really hard. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird. Both because Golden Harvest, it, it's weird that Golden Harvest produced it both because you, like the material, like they must have just been looking at it from a straight dollars and cents thing mm-hmm. of like, this is the biggest star in America. This is our biggest star right now. Put them together. People will see it and it just raises awareness. That's all we want. And we rake in some dollars because there's no other reason for it. Cause even the, 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 I think there's only one fight scene with Jackie Chan in the first one. And they make a point of, of putting some more action with him in, in the second one. But like even the fight scene that they have, you would think that Hal Needham would be better at shooting action with him, but it's horrible. Well, He's missing him by a mile. Yeah. Like he doesn't even know where to put the camera and like, and how like, He's great at fist fights. The fist fight in Hooper's awesome. The fist fight in Smoking the Bandit, where it's oh yeah, um, that whole fucking bar fight in Hooper is so amazing. It's great. It's so fun. Again, a great fun light scene where after it, they all end up in the trash outside, and it's that one stunt buddy of his who's also in Longest Yard, and he's the right. back one. He's in Hard uh, Harsh Times, right? Um, hard Times, uh, and uh, then you have um, Terry Bradshaw, also his buddy. It seems like in real life, and they're like, because well, he would Let's show go. up in a few of them. he because he shows up in Hooper, he shows up in Cannibal One, Cannibal One, he shows up in Stroker Ace, I believe. Too. I don't think so. But isn't that Stroker Ace or is it Cannibal Two? I'm thinking of. He shows up in a few of them, but either way, it's just like. Terry Bradshaw totally fits in this world. Oh, it's great. When they, they, he, you know, his tooth comes out and they're like, Hey, you guys are all right. That was a good fight. Let's go find another bar. And I, that kind of very light 
you know, atmosphere, but can, well, it might be Smokey really... too. He shows up in too, because me and Joe Green's in it as well. Yes. I think it's Smokey too. Yeah. That and Cannonball just really stretched my. These all my kind patience. of blended together at a certain point, to where some of them, I might be cherry picking one one from another. It's totally movie, fair. Just being like, I think because like Cannonball Two almost feels like a mushroom trip that I was on because I'm just like, uh, yeah, like, and then Frank Sinatra showed up, and then Henry Silver, Henry Silver was a mobster at one point, and then. Dom DeLuise does a Godfather impersonation that's horrible. Like, they're just, you watch them, and, and they're the broadest, most ridiculous, like, lowest common denominator humor the entire time. But they were huge hits. It, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of humor in, like, some DreamWorks animated movies. Sometimes, it's yeah. so of the day. And it's like, you know, in five years, that's not a funny joke anymore. I feel like it's all, like, very of the time, too where it's lazy, but also written for 80, 81 or 82. And you're like, I don't get it. Or like, I get it, oh, but it's lame as fuck. These could have only come from like one, pe- like the same way that the Sandler movies come yes. from their specific periods of time. These came from the late seventies and the early eighties. But I, I think what's also kind of remarkable about them is not only Govin, golden harvest, uh, producing the cannibal movies, but yet Al fucking ruddy yeah. was like, uh, the, the, uh, the Godfather producer, was more or less like the rabbi for Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds the, this entire time. He was a huge champion for them just because Burt was such a huge star and so charismatic. Um, why they let there be so many racist jokes in Cannibal Run? Like, because there's Jew jokes in it. There's the aforementioned Jackie Chan, like, gonging in it. There's... Uh, the whole oil chic character. Oh, it's really it gets, bad. Well, he becomes one of the main characters in two. Oh, no. And you meet his dad, and you're like, oh, man, this is really, really bad. Um, but, yeah, it's it's totally playing. Again, I think it's a know-your-audience type thing, though, because could I imagine Uncle Cletus watching this in a drive-in at Arkansas chuckle at the, the gonging every time uh, Jackie Chan shows up in a Mitsubishi? Sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I think we should get the Stroker Ace next. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is the, 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 let's say, the last in the run of Burt and Hal movies, probably for good reason, because Burt moved on and Hal just went on to make, let's say, actual good movies here and there. Um, Or at least more inspired ones uh, after. But Stroker Ace bit of a, another rough sit, but I will tell you that I, I think it's head and shoulders above the Cannonball films. It's, it's funny as you came over and I was just finishing it again and I'd seen it earlier this year when I went through uh, a Burt phase and was just kind of watching all the stuff I hadn't watched. And I hated it the first time I watched it because in my mind, I thought everything was going to be like smoking the bandit was going to have like big action scenes and it'd be, you know, like I was expecting like sure more rough and tumble Hal Needham action. And it's not, it's a comedy. It's, it's a, it's, it's Talladega nights. It's Talladega nights. It's, it's shtick, but it's also has a pretty good through line of a plot of a, um, a theme we'll see in another film, which we'll talk about in a few um, of basically the evils of advertising and also in sports where um, sponsors kind of start to take over things. Um, and he's yeah. trying to get out of a pretty mm. rotten contract that Ned Beatty, uh, chicken pit owner, um, has basically tricked him into signing where he is now 
less of a driver and more like he dresses up as a chicken. He does all these openings for these restaurants. He's just living this really like a life he doesn't want to live. And he even has to drive a race as a chicken at one point. Yes. Um, well, he did it on purpose because he wanted to get out of the contract. Right. And so you, again, you have a, a trio. So you have, uh, uh, Bert as Stroker Ace, then his best buddy played by the great Jim Neighbors, Gomer Pyle. Um, and then you Who have, gets hit on by Elvira at one point. They go have sex. Yeah. Yeah, they, they go off together. And then she he's looks like, great. I, she looks so great. Oh my God. Um, and then uh, you have Lonnie Anderson. And Ugh. now you said that you'd prefer Farrah Fawcett. I mean, we're talking, you know, apples and shit, but um, I'd prefer that like Burt Reynolds just act against a fence post. What I, what I like about Lonnie Anderson in this movie, because Lonnie was also, this is like, was it WKRP, the show she was on? Right. And so she was, had already created this, this star persona. He goes persona. into that in the memoirs too. She already created a star persona of like the ultimate blonde bimbo. I mean like She's sweet, a Jane Mansfield. Jane Mansfield, the, yeah. the best, Jane Mansfield, it's like almost like she's a farce in herself. She's ironically the, the blonde well, because when Stroker first sees her, like she's doing the full Marilyn Monroe, some like it hot, like great scene, more or less, just in a in a NASCAR pit. Yeah, I get, they could blow some stable. Some guys are are. It's like a tire hose that they're using. To she's blow like, oh, yeah. but she's supposed to be a, a virgin and like very sweet Midwest or Southern girl, and like basically most of the jokes in the film are about him trying to bang her. Like right. the main thrust is about, and there's a scene. There's a really bad uh, possible rape joke in it. That's it's it's really really rough. So I remember when I first watched it this year, it was one of the scenes where I was like, "Can this end now?" So basically, she he's been trying to sleep with her, and has been lying to her and sick. She won't. She doesn't drink either. And he's like, "Oh, this is non-alcoholic champagne." And she gets drunk on it. She goes, oh, I know this is alcoholic. She goes, I want you now. She goes in and falls asleep on her back on the bed. He comes in. He's like, wake up. She won't wake up. And he's like, well, you can't sleep with your clothes on. He I just started having you right now. He just starts. To. And he's yeah, he just starts to take off like all her stuff. He goes, oh, but then he like leaves the frame. It's all in one shot. Comes back. Goes, well, I read this thing. That's really bad to sleep in your clothes. It's unhealthy for the circulation. I'm like, dude, fucking stop. And it, the, the scene will not stop. Well, but, he, but it, he finally does stop and leaves and they do not have sex. And well, that, yeah. it becomes his, it, it also becomes the trademark. Uh, Bert breaks the fourth law ball oh. moment too, because he, you know, he does it in Smokey. He does it in Hooper. Um, but here he does it to where he goes, it, it, it's the cringiest part of the entire joke, is he goes, you know, I could ravage you right now, and no one would know. And then he looks right at the camera, almost as if like we would know. And some it's Michael like, Haneke. Yes, I would fucking know. That's some funny game shit, where it's yeah. like, you're culpable. <laughs> no, I'm not. Please leave. <laughs> oh, God. It's brutal. And he does leave, and then the next morning he goes, oh, you're a true gentleman. And it's like, all right, let's still fucking creepy as hell. And it does not go over well. Um, I did wonder while watching this, if this movie was more or less about how Bert doesn't want to make these movies anymore or how for that matter, because it feels it's very sticky. There's a little more love to it because it's obviously influenced by how Needham owning his own NASCAR stock racing team, really being into that sport and even, uh, trying to coach a team to uh, the cup victories and probably how like I, I wouldn't, 
put it past like NASCAR to have like the Ned Beatty style, like down good old boy, rich dude who bought himself a NASCAR team and uses it more or less as like a giant billboard for his, his fried chicken. Like that feels like a dude that Hal Needham probably knew and was like, ah, he's a fucking idiot the entire time. Like I'm here to actually just rate, make cars go fast, you know? But like, so you can feel that a little bit, but the whole idea of like, just get me out of this contract. What can I do for you to fucking fire me? Which becomes Stroker Ace's like entire like motivation at one point. That feels like Bert directly being like, get me the fuck out of here. Like we've done enough of these at this point. This is fun here. Maybe I've met my future wife and Lonnie Anderson. Like this is his latest romantic foil. Um, the lace blonde bombshell who looks the polar opposite to any way that Sally Field did. Yeah. And like, I don't know, like it, it, there's a desperation to it that I think comes off and is pretty palpable the entire time. No, I would agree. I think like it's another film. It's like a lot of it's just very meta to what was happening for Bert, which is also what it is to be a star and to be a celebrity. Right. And he's so in the film, like, yeah, the race is very much like, what the fuck am I doing? I just want to race. You know, it's, and I think it actually has, again, one of the better plots, I think, in, in through lines character wise of at the end where he is torn between he goes, if I lose the race, I'm out of my contract, but I had to throw the race right. to do that. And he remembers like why he wants to be a race. He likes to race. Like it's kind of, again, like Talladega Nights a little bit, but it, it has you ain't like, first, you're last. Yeah. And he, but he has the moment where he sees that his, again, there's a young, um, uh, Aubrey uh, is the is his competitor, who's much more of an asshole version of the J. Michael Vance character, like the younger new generation of of driver. He's such a nothing character. Like oh. they do nothing. With oh, it's that he's dude. so underwritten, but he just like yeah. he's kind of like Carrie Elwes in um, Days of Thunder, like that. But but he ends up actually that's perfect. Yeah, the exact same character, and he ends up basically. It's kind of a cool moment where he's driving next to Stroker, and Stroker's losing on purpose, and he's like, "Come on." Let's do it. Like race me. Like I don't want to. Like, almost like I don't want to beat you like this. Which I think is a cool little. Yeah, I want to. I want to beat you fair and square. Yeah, and I, I always love that kind of thing where it's like take me on, and then when he loses, he's like you're still number one, you know. And he's like, Stroker's like I know, and so I, I totally see what you're saying about it being very autobiographical about Bert, and maybe like you said Hal being done with this kind of movie, but like. Bert also gives it a hundred percent in this movie. Like he still is a movie star. Like it doesn't feel tired to me. It still feels like he's playing the movie that he and Hal have put together. Like uh, he's giving it. Hal actually ends his memoirs with a, a poem that his stepdad wrote about if you're going to do a job, you do it till it's done and you do it the best that you can. And that seems to be the guiding mantra of both Bert and Hal is that like, yeah, sometimes these jobs might not have been the best decision, but we're here and we're, we're here to make a fucking movie and we're going to do it. And nobody's going to feel like we gave 50% at any time because again, Stroker Ace, uh, much like Bond is one of the great representations of, of Bert's, uh, the two birds, let's say the, yeah. the two wolves that are, that are wrestling inside of <laughs> who, who Bert, do you feed Bert Reynolds <laughs> because Burt Reynolds famously turned down uh, the Jack Nicholson role in terms of endearment to do Stroker Ace. Why? Because he thought Stroker Ace would be a sure thing where terms of endearment would be, would have been a bigger risk. And he had already made a movie with Brooks, um, 
which was Brooks' directorial debut, but I'm, I'm blanking on the title with it. And it's the reason that Brooks wanted uh, him to be in terms of endearment. And he was like, no, he might've been a nominated or won an Academy Award for that fucking movie. Yeah. And he turned it down. It's also like the, the one of the great stories about Burt Reynolds that, I, that I've always been baffled by is how much he dislikes Boogie Nights. Like he apparently hated every day of working on that movie, thought it was shit, hated making a movie about porno the entire time. And like, He's come around on it, or came around, and he's dead now, but like came around at it slightly by the end. This dude died. <laughs> but like it got him an Academy Award nomination, and like everybody else who talks about fucking uh, Boogie Nights is like, we knew what we had. Like we knew what we were making. Like Michael DeLuca is like, I put everything that I had in my like soul to make sure that this fucking movie existed. It seemed like everybody knew. But Burt Reynolds and Burt Reynolds got fucking nominated for an Academy Award and still was like, I hate it. I was reading another um, interview with him today about Boogie Nights and they said, I think he said, they basically, they said, who wouldn't you work with again? He said, I wouldn't work with Paul Thomas Anderson again. And, but he was a little bit nicer in this than he had been in other things I'd read where he said, you know, he was a young guy. And he was way too excited. I think he was annoying to Bert. And coked and, up. Coked, I think that's code for coked up. Yeah. But he also would say that every shot they would set up, he made it sound like it was the first time it had ever been done before. And so he'd be like, oh, we're going to do the shot. So it's like, they've never been done for this long, this long take. And Bert would be like, oh, they already did that in these five movies and basically shut him down. Right. He was annoyed by the film school, like, nerd side yeah the film brat of it all you put those two kind of personalities together i'm not surprised that like bert was like what the fuck is this how needham versus pt anderson or two well (laughs) also not even that i would take it back even further beyond Hal. is that like bert was the product of the old school television star series yes he worked with nothing but yeah he was rick dalton he worked with nothing but straight up journeyman directors for most of his career where he came from how he learned to like production let's say was from the old television and studio system so like paul thomas anderson coming in because also like what is bert by the time pta is making boogie nights is he 70 60 he's got to be like yeah he's He's getting to be in his twilight years let's say yeah so uh, he's probably just like i don't know who the fuck is this guy? And Paul Thomas Anderson just in between takes is just hoovering cocaine the entire time (laughs) is like, where's fucking William H. Tracy. Where's my Chinese man throwing firecrackers, like just going off. And you could see Burt Reynolds be like, yeah, I'm not into any of this. What's that whole story about Fiona Apple stopping cocaine because she spent a night hanging out with Quentin and PT. Yeah. They both were just so, (laughs) I mean, look, man, if you give me an eight ball and Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino in the same room, I'll tell you what, that eight ball is going to be gone. We're going to order more and we're going to stay up all night. Sorry, Fiona. I know who I'm siding with in this equation. But do we want to talk about uh, the the post-Burt years real quick? Yeah. Because you watched, uh, I missed one. Actually, I missed two. I didn't get to see Megaforce or Body Slam, which you watched, but we both watched Rad, his BMX movie. So what's the order here? What's next in line? Well, he actually makes Megaforce in 82 between the Cannonball movies and Stroker Ace, right? Yes. Um, well, you go for this. You texted me something along the lines of Megaforce is basically G.I. Joe. It is 100% G.I. Joe, which is interesting because I believe G.I. Joe the new series of like toys that the three and a half inch was in 82. So it's not like it's copying. It was definitely kind of in that zeitgeist of 
interest in a kind of cartoony military thing, definitely early Reagan years. Um, it's a weird fucking movie. So the basic setup is there is, it's our world, but kind of not. Um, there's a, a fictional war, um, basically playing field, um, where you have Henry Silva is this evil um, guerrilla leader. He's, he's having, Cobra Commander. He's Cobra Commander, but like having a really good time. And he has like 10 tanks, real fucking tanks too. They got like M1 Abrams for this movie that, that actually fire. Oh, wow. So that's fucking cool. Um, and then they, this one government needs help from this secret military force called Megaforce. And naturally they go to, uh, basically get them to join them and, and help fight. And it's Barry Bostwick as the lead. And what's interesting about the movie is, I think I mentioned this to you after I watched it, that even when Bert's not in the movie, like the main character is kind of a Bert character, like definitely a uh, Han Solo who he also almost, he auditioned was going to maybe possibly play in star Wars. I feel like Um, half of Hollywood, if you were a young male, Around 77 audition for Han Solo. Right. And I think, you know, Bert was definitely that kind of, you know, devil may care yeah. kind of guy. And so this main character, I believe his name is, I think it's Hunter is the the main guy. And it's got this big pompadour of like 80s hair, almost like, almost like hair metal hair um, and skin tight clothes. But they're all have these kind of high tech gear, like motorcycles with missiles that shoot out the front. Um, they have these cool dune buggies. Um, they also are really good in the air. So there's a whole like skydiving thing. It's, it's a big desert movie, right? It's all in the desert. So like almost like road warrior shit. Yeah, but it's like modern day. And so, and it's like high, high tech stuff. And there's some, you know, really cool stunt shit in it. Um, like the first time you meet Megaforce, they're testing out their bikes and these guys are all like popping wheelies and literally actually shooting missiles like off there or something off these motorcycles and blowing up balls in the air. These like, these like basically almost like clay balls that blow up into dust and like shooting skeet, like almost. shooting skeet, but like testing out um, missiles with a skeet miss. Yeah. Skeet, skeet, skeet missiles, if you will. And then, uh, but Hal Needham's in it. He plays the technician who is in one of the, he's basically a moving um, command center and he's the one telling them what to do and like what their you know danger level is and the like. Um, it's, I mean, it's really fucking cartoony even for Hal Needham when he's being super cartoony. Sure. Um, but it has a lot of the same stuff that, that he likes. Like again, like a lot, a lot of focus on good stunt work um, he, he loves deserts too. He almost has these like David lean esque shots, which he also has in Spokey too, with like well, kind cannibal of, run too. Yes. Yeah. It's the wide open highway thing. It's the thing that the black top that cuts through desert on either side mountains in the distance. I really feel like that comes at least partially from being on so many Western sets Yeah, is that it's just, you know, the, the, the uh, desert highway is almost like the the new Americana or like the new Western landscape for him, you know. Yes, and he, yeah, he's got a visual. He's got things he's drawn to. Um, the end is a pretty, pretty cool. There's like big battle um, between the both sides where it's regular modern tanks versus these futuristic looking things uh, led by Barry Boswick and his team. And what again connects to his other films thematically is at the end. So you find out Henry Silva, who's the main bad guy, and Barry Boswick, like I think they were a nom together and they're friends. So even though they're like fighting, they're kind of like 
hey, buddy, good to see you, man. Well, I got to get back to this war we're fighting. Yeah, cool. And at the end, when they basically outsmart him, he's like, see you, man. And, and like Henry Silva's like, oh, you dog, you. And like, even though so it's like Hal Needham's war horse. It, very. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> But it's like even these movies where every single one has this kind of ending. It happens at the end of, of Stroker Ace where he kind of gives a thumbs up to the younger kid. They're both like Jam Michael Vincent and, and Hooper. Yep. It's all these like, hey, we're, we're still cool even though we were like villains in the, or against each other in the movie. Well, let's talk about that for two seconds because I think that is one of the interesting uh, things about Hal Needham's whole philosophy when he makes these movies. And like you were saying that everybody's buddy buddy, the good natured vibes of it all. But he almost seems to resent, again, be, because it's all about outsiders working outside of the system and oppressive kind of like forces that come down on them, be it like money or shitty stock car owners or like a pompous director. Like it always seems like Hal is like, no, the young guys and the old guys, we're not enemies, you know, like, like what really is like the enemy, not to be like pretentious or goofy, yeah. but it's like the, the system, system. Yeah. the <laughs> ones that pit us against each other, like in mega force, like war itself, let's say again, not to be pretentious or whatever, yeah. but it's like, these guys could still be friends, like, and our friends and like the, how almost wants everybody to recognize like, Hey, we're not competing because we want to compete. Like we're just competitive dudes and we want to win. They're making us compete, but we need to realize that we're kind of in this, like in this together, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's very much there and it's, you know, it was really fun to watch. It kind of had a like master of the universe, 87 vibe where it was trying to do a lot more with the budget that it had <laughs> than it could. Um, well, that's also the Hal Needham way. Right. But this especially, I think like at least his other films take place in like, quote unquote, the real world. Like this is trying to be this like sci-fi kind of a little bit futuristic, but modern day war world. So more production design. Um, I think if I had watched as a kid, I would have loved it. And it has a robot jocks vibe to it as well, where it's like war, but very boiled down for kids, you know, like good sure. guys versus bad guys, black versus white, just elemental stuff. Yes, very much. Well, let's talk about rad and body slam real quick. Rad fucking rules. This is, they're both 1986, yes. I believe. And rad is him making a BMX biker movie. Doesn't write it, just directs it, and it's released uh, by Columbia TriStar, kind of in the same uh, era when they were making like Legend of Billie Jean yeah. to kind of toss it back to one of our other episodes and has a very similar vibe, again, about outlaw kids, only this time on, on dirt bikes, a corporate interest that's basically coming in and, and trying to more or less pervert their sport in the name of the, the almighty dollar smoking uh, a stroke race and stroke race too. Yep. Well, and also like the exploitation and like Billy Jean is kind of where I was going with too, oh, is yeah. there's the whole, the rebel teens be not wanting to be like kind of held down by the, the systems that the adults are putting into place. And then there's a romance at the center, a, a kind of unlikely romance between uh, our lead and Lori Laughlin. This is, a fucking awesome movie. I resisted this the entire time the same way that I resisted Goonies or really any hook, any of these movies that are, uh, you know, kind of rescued by sheer nostalgia because like 
Rad's been hard to find because of rights issues for a long, long time. There wasn't really any kind of official release. Uh, the studio was weird about the movie. The rights holders are weird about the movie. And there was Vulcan, some music stuff There was too, some right? music stuff too with the new wave soundtrack. And the, like the soundtrack is almost like 90% of why you watch this movie. It's so fucking awesome. The same way again, to tie it in with like Billie Jean. Um, but like at Vulcan, we rented the shit out of rad and we had a bootleg of it because like you couldn't get an actual copy of this movie and revisiting it today before we recorded dude like this movie i wouldn't go as far as to say it's legitimately good but like i was real into it it's like the rocky four of bmx movies i loved it like it was exactly what i wanted and i I was the same i kind of like everyone was talking about it when it came out on the the blu-ray and everyone's like, oh my God, I love it. And I've been a little bit over the like heavy 80s nostalgia that even me and I usually like that. And I'm like, man, I don't know. And I was like 10 minutes in and I was like, okay, I like this a lot. Um, I was real into it. I thought it was cool. And then the send me an angel yep, that's bike the moment. dance happened and I went, oh wow, this is real fucking weird. Like I'm, I'm totally into it because you said something interesting about it that I think is kind of dead on when you were texting, because you watched it before I did, and you were like, it's really cool because you can tell that Needham respects the sport, but it also feels like an old dude trying to make a movie for young people, and that kind of shines through a little bit. I agree with that. I agree with the second part to a certain degree, but I definitely think that Needham like loves like he just saw somebody doing BMX and was like, Oh shit, that's crazy. Then like, let's have you do it all like in the frame, do all these crazy tricks and everything. Cause he even replaces his usual gag reels that go, have, go over the end credits since I believe Hooper is actually the first one that mm. he does for it in that he doesn't have a gag reel. He just has a dude doing BMX tri- tricks while the them. credits roll. And it's awesome. And it's the opening credits, too. They have yeah. all these amazing tricks. Is And there's a lot more racing in this than any of his other movies. Like, he actually gets racing footage. Yeah, it's it's really... And, and he... It has a really... Um, also a very, like, fun 80s, like, 80s vibe to it. It kind of has... I think I mentioned you... Like an um, underdog thing going almost on. Almost like a ski school kind of thing, too. Sure. Of, of just, like, you know, there's the asshole rich kids and... Or, the you know, the asshole establishment. Again, there's the... Um, the sponsors. Well, it's like a money man comes in. He's going to hold like the biggest race of all time. And he's got his pony. Who's more or less like a ringer who comes in. And that's how they start, uh, advertising the entire race is that it's the greatest racers of all time in BMX. While this like local legend again, comes in like the fucking bandit. Yep. And more or less has to lobby to even be allowed to, uh, participate in the race. To the point where there's that crazy inspirational scene where that beefy ass cop who doesn't it. take his fucking aviators off during the entire scene, mind you, goes up and delivers this like inspirational speech like, I've seen these kids all over every mall. I've chased them. And if you're going to tell me they're not allowed to participate in this town's greatest event, well, shame on all you. And I was like, what am I watching at this point? But it all weirdly works because again, it's like, I think it's the same good natured vibe that he brings to all the Burt stuff that he did uh, is that it's the same thing that he does here to where it's literally just like 
we should cheer for these kids. We want them to win. We want them to beat the big bad establishment and the ringers and like, here we go. This is our, this is his Rocky. It's, it's funny because he didn't write the script. Um, because, um, there's definitely, there's two things in this film that are exactly what happened in Stroker Ace. And it's at the end where you have, they basically have figured out a way to help the main guy, Bart, uh, they're Brad, rigging Brad, the race. They're rigging the race, but he's a real, he's a real, he's a real athlete, and he wants to win for real. Right. So he actually stops and lets Clue, uh, crew catch up. And his idea is like, I don't, if I'm going to win, I want to win for real. And then, so you had that moment from Stroker Ace, and then the end, the same thing where, uh, where I think it's like Bubba, uh, Bubba actually helps lift the car at the end of Stroker Ace to help change the wheel. And they said, hey, oh, that's right, Bubba Smith Bubba is the Smith. driver. And they said, hey. We got a new Jack, a new Jack guy. They're like, cool, welcome to the team. Same thing at the end of of, uh, of Rad, where Brad loses, goes, hey, good race. Okay, hey, we got room on Rad Racing for you. Brad, he goes, sounds good. And it's the exact <laughs> same thing, where it's like, even though we were we were enemies, now we're on the same team. So he had yeah. these vibes of like, like good vibes of... It's again, the same thing of like... We're all in this together. Yes. Like it's they, they're the bad guys. The corporate suits. They're the bad dudes. They're the ones who are pitting us against each other. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. This is all just supposed to be like a friendly competition between people who are just in love with the sport or yeah. whatever. You know? So let's do Body Slam real quick and then get to questions. Sounds good. Uh, so Body Slam was the... I did not watch this one despite owning the Blu-ray. I felt very bad. Also, my devotion to Rowdy Roddy Piper... I failed you, sir. Yeah, and that's actually what got me to watch it. I said, okay, well, I wanted to see it anyway just for the, the podcast, but basic plot is... I want to just see it. Fucking Hal Needham making a wrestling movie sounds great. It's you know, it's not horrible. Um, it's <laughs> it's one of my least favorites. Martin Carlson's glowing endorsement. <laughs> not horrible. Not, not horrible. Um, Wouldn't tell you it's good. <laughs> but Dirk Benedict plays from uh, A-Team fame and also Battlestar Galactica fame, um, plays a very... Uh, a moral promoter in in California, um, and basically you see him the first time. He has the exact same uh, Ferrari that they have in um, Cannonball Run. The, the well, that's the, Hal's the, Ferrari. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. What's the Magnum Pi Ferrari? That, yeah, that, it's the, the, the three hundred five GT. Yeah, the one that the one that he uh, uses in Cannonball. That's actually Hal's. Okay. Well, it's and he has it in this one too. Yeah. And then so you, you meet him like, oh, this guy seems kind of he's got a slick back hair. You're like, oh, this guy's legit. And immediately gets it repossessed. Um, and you're like, oh, he's down on his luck. And he gets a chance to basically make some more money and help out some wrestlers, which he knows nothing about. He's a music promoter. He meets Roddy Roddy Piper, who is as charismatic as ever. So like when those when Roddy's around, it really helps the Does he out. drop any O's? He does not, but Ric Flair does show up for a minute. Ooh! Um, and so uh it's it's Roddy Roddy Piper, another wrestler who I forget his name, and it's kind of Isn't a cool it Captain Lou Albano, Albano's in that one. I think it might be that. Yeah. And they basically, it's cool because he does become like a better person because these guys actually trust him. Usually he's just like cheating all his acts to like make as much money as possible. And the, the main thrust of the film is it's rock and wrestling. And so he has a rock band and then uh, his two his wrestling duo, and he goes around the country in a, a converted bus, and they put on shows to make money. You're really struggling to sell me that this movie's bad. I know. I, as, as I pitched that right now, it sounds a lot better than it is. 
Um, but the thing I think thematically that that I noticed and we, I, when I told the plot to you, is it's very much you can see his also respect for wrestling. Sure. See, the same way he had the respect for BMX. So this is the next thing. You would also- think he'd have even more respect for BMX just, or not BMX for wrestling because like they're almost the same, doing the same exact thing that Hal is. You're, is you're that selling punches. Performers, you're selling punches. You're sacrificing your body. You are a performer in front of an audience. Like it's, it's what he did. Well, there's, I mean, there's shots in The Wrestler that are very similar to Hooper, where it's like, you know, just right. the shots you take and the pain pills to kind of get through it, the, the wreck of a body you have left after a career doing these stunts and doing wrestling. But it, it gets into that, and it's basically him trying to, I think, there's, a, there's one bad promoter who's actually, he's almost like a Vince McMahon, like he's part of the wrestling scene, like he's in the ring kind of guy. He's the establishment, He's baby. the establishment, and... So, but he, he kind of, he rules wrestling with an iron fist and he, Roddy Roddy Piper and the other guy basically break away from him because he's super, um, uh, abusive financially to them and also just abusive. And so Dirk Bennett, kind of gives them a chance. Um, it's, yeah, it has a lot of the similar themes. Also, I think small town America, um, and fun for the masses, you know, kind of thing. The Coliseum. The Coliseum. But it's, it's very like, I really actually like the backwoods of America that it shows. It's like these, it's these like small towns in like California and in Florida that have like a 2000 seat arena, you know, it's like that size. Like Jupiter, Florida. Yeah. You know, like where Burt Reynolds grew up. Very much. Because I mean, that's one of the things that we didn't even hit on when we were talking about their relationship is that like, Burt was an athlete until he got hurt. Yeah. He was going to be a huge football star and then more or less was talked into uh, doing drama by like a, you know, a teacher. And then Bud Bedecker, similar shit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Bud Bedecker, Hal was a sharecropper's son. And as he even puts it in the bandit doc- documentary, ain't nobody lower than the son of a sharecropper. You get up at dawn and you go to sleep right before the sun is going to rise and you do it to put fucking food on the table and make sure there's fire in the fireplace. That's it. You're right. You, there's no dreams of stardom for like a sharecropper's kid. It wasn't until like he came off, went into the army and then basically more or less like just moved to California on a whim and started doing stunts. Uh, but they, they always talked about how to bring it back to Hooper is that like, Bert always wanted to be Hal and Hal always wanted to be Bert and Bert playing Hal is the ultimate kind of tribute to that of like, this is my best friend. This is the guy that I admire most in the world. And like, what a thrill it must've been to be Hal Needham and be like, my buddy thinks I'm the greatest. Like, and I think that's where that camaraderie and that's that good natured spirit comes from. But to bring it back to what you were saying about the, these small towns is like, they not only respect stunts, stunt people and action and how to shoot it and show it in the frame, but like we're, we are condescending and make fun of like where these movies played so well but like they did it because like that's who they are. Like yep. that's where they come from and that's where their bond was formed as they re- recognize that they're both the same fucking dude. One just ha- had a better skill or a different skill set than the other and the other just wanted to learn that skill set. So like that's kind of cool. Again, it's you know, I do 
I did have the distinct thought while watching these Burt and Hal movies is that like Hal and Burt probably would have been MAGA. <laughs> like like that that would have been bad. But like I'm glad we never had to know. I'm glad we I'm glad they happened forty years before MAGA, but like, yeah, that that Hal Needham, I definitely could see voting for Trump. But Bert, I re- actually they asked they asked uh, Bert about Trump right before he died, and he goes, "I know the guy, I like the guy, but he's kind of a, a he's he said you have to be very ruthless in business. I don't think ruthlessness is good for politics. Yeah. So I think that was you know sure there's a, good the, enough. The most he could say that wasn't like I don't like this guy. Sure. You want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. We're going to do what they say can be done. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just like no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal. Some never mind them brakes. Let it all hang out because we got to run to make. The boys are thirsty in Atlanta and there's beer in Texarkana. And we'll bring it back no matter what it takes. Eastbound and down. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get We're back with questions about 1978's Hooper. Martin, this is your show. Take it away. All right. So first question is top three Hal Needham films. What you got? Hooper's number one. Um... Like, I'd be lying if I didn't say Smokey, right? Yeah. Like, that's one and two. Three is where it gets tough, because you got a lot of garbage that I still have some affection for. (laughs) But, like, if I tried to lie to you and say Stroker Ace is good, like, I enjoyed watching it, but there was also parts of it that were excruciating. Uh, Neither of the Cannonball movies, those those movies should have sent both Bert and Howe to possible, like, like Mexican prison. (laughs) Um... I didn't get to see Megaforce yet. That's my only blind spot in, well, that and Body Slam are my blind spots in the Hal Needham filmography. So I would go with, oh man, I'm torn between Smokey 2 and Rad. I would probably say Rad is the better movie. While I like all of the meta stuff from Smokey 2, and I actually think Jerry Reed is like, super good in, in Smokey too. Like he actually feels like he's putting in sort of a performance in it and is genuinely concerned for the bandit and, and, and Bert and everything. And his scenes with Sally field are also really good. But again, do you, I wonder how much of that is just Sally field was just lifting all these dudes up and more or less like carrying these movies kind of on her shoulders. And that's why the movie dip in quality so hard as soon as she's out of the picture. So I'm going to commit, I'm going to go, Hooper, Smokey One, Smokey Two as one, two, and three with Rad right outside of the top three. I think having only just seen it for the first time recently, it might climb with a few more viewings, but you know, the other ones just have the edge of the fact that I've seen them a bunch of times. Totally fair. Yeah, I would do number one, Smoking Bandit one for me, just because it's like right. my ultimate favorites, one actually playing favorite movies. I like to watch it all the time. Hooper would easily be number two now. 
You have the 4K smoking the bandit oh, disc, yeah. right? I got that shit the day it came out. Like I yeah. pre-ordered it like months. I remember in you advance. texting me a picture of it and being like, "Yeah, it's on now." <laughs> and I watched it again last night. It's it's gotten a lot of use. Um, it's beautiful, like beautiful transfer. Um, so I do Hooper second. I just I really I really like that movie a lot. I love like you, you said just the kind of autobiographical nature of it and the meta nature of it. So definitely Hooper for two. And I would do rad for three. Okay. Um, I just really didn't like Smokey two. Um, in the end it just didn't work for me. I, I just, I was thinking, I was, I was like, Oh man, this is where's the fucking action, you know? Um, and well, you know, it's bad when you're considering whether or not the elephant is giving a better performance than some of the human performers. Yeah, it's rough. And, and you know, I don't want to rip on Dom DeLuise too much. Cause like you I can though, he's terrible. I genuinely, the things I like more about Dom DeLuise are the after credit shit. The credits, like, I like watching him and Bert, like, yuck it up. It's, it's fucking funny. Like, wow, it actually looks like I had, they had a good time. I'm not having a good time watching their movie, yeah. but they seem like they had a blast. Like, a genuine, like, they're just fucking around, and, you know, Dom can't get through three lines without fucking up. Um, Dom DeLuise would be MAGA. I don't think so. Nah. His sons are both still actors. Yeah. Yeah. Peter. Are they MAGA? I don't think so. No, no. Uh, <laughs> well, because one, one was in 21 Jump Street. He's with the uh, partner to Johnny Depp was his kid on the show. Oh, okay. And in the movie. Um, and then uh, the other one was on Wizards of Waverly Place. He's the dad. Oh, weird. So they both kind of were around for a while. Um, but yeah, I, I like, I just like, I mean, Rad was great. It was very much that perfect 80s vibe. Love the music. Love Send Me an Angel as a song, period. And then when that came on and that like bicycle dance scene is like fucking great. The, the, uh, you texted me that Break the Ice, the, the, the theme song of the, the movie as well as just a straight up banger, which is true. That's definitely going to be one of the transitions in this, this episode, because I want to do all uh, like Jerry Reed, but I'll tell you what, I heard that song and I was like, Nope, this move, this fucking song rules. I love it so much. I took a shower earlier and I played it while I was in the shower. I was getting just like really got my day going. Um, did you beat it? No, I was earlier. Um, all right. (laughs) So second question, remake, yeah or nay? No. Well, well complex. Of, of any of them. No. Yeah. I mean, they're just only two people could have made these movies. In the case of the Smokey movies and Hooper, you know, three when you include Sally Field, but like No. Like they're, they're just they came from these distinct people. Now, here's what I would argue. Although technically we've kind of already had this. I would be into, like, maybe not a limited series, but something kind of in the style of this new series that they're putting out about the Godfather, about the making of it, because there is enough insane stories about the uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff on the Smokey movies. Maybe even doing it as a... You know what? If you did it as a limited series, almost as like the the Fosse-Verdon uh, FX series that they did about their Bob Fosse and uh, his uh, muses relationship. Let's say that might be an interesting movie that I would watch or series that I would watch if you made it about the Burt and Sally Field love affair and how you could track it through the movies and maybe all their behind the scenes stuff and the making of Smokey and the Bandit and Hooper. And Burton and Howe's relationship. Obviously, you're you're 
might be treading some of the same ground there as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a little bit, but that's so fictionalized that you could probably do something new and original with it. But I would watch something like that, like to where it's about the real people making these movies because the stories behind them are insane enough. In the Cannonball Run movies too, but they don't have the same uh, love through line that I think would would float a series really well and actually add a, a real sense of like dramatic state, like stakes and pathos to it. Like the cannonball movies just sound like they just hung out and partied from like dusk until dawn shot their scenes and then went and just kept drinking whatever hotel they were staying at because the, the like stories in both uh, Hal and Burt's memoirs are just basically like, and then Dean Martin started singing with Sammy Davis, except they couldn't remember the words because they were so hammered. And like you know, and then Shirley MacLaine shows up, and you're just like, cool. yeah, cool, <laughs> man. But the movie sucked. But that's what I would actually watch to to come back to my answer is that if you did a limited series about Bert and Sally Field, the making of of all the Hal Needham movies, and like their relationship, Bert and Hal's relationship, and the eventual kind of demise of that that partnership that the the three of them shared that would be that would be interesting i like that um so there's i had one idea of what i would do um it wouldn't be a remake but um this is actually a possibility because it's universal universal still owns the rights to smoking the bandit and they also are the company that does fast and the furious i would do a crossover where it's Fast and the Furious, um, but like Southern style. But it's in the past, and it's more about when uh, Dom's dad, like in his earlier days before he became a racer, knew the Bandit because the timing works out. And wasn't it's like, that part of the prologue of F Nine? Don't we finally see Dom's dad? But he's but he's a racer, right? But like before that, when he was more on the yeah, streets, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so you're 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 kind of building that out even more. But Dom's dad hangs out with the bandit? Yeah. They were both like, it was almost like an expanded universe of all these racers. And it's like, because I've always, when I was trying to think of like a double feature, I did, of course, think of Fast and the Furious. Um, because there's definitely that kind of the car culture and the, and the, the love of real stunts, the respect for right. stunts. Um, but I had I picked something else for my double feature instead. But I would love to see the bandit show up, like a young bandit show up in the Fast and the Furious franchise. How do you think Jerry Reed would react to a biracial challenger? My my response would be poorly. Oh, oh you mean Jerry's character, Snowman? Yeah. Fred would... Fred, Fred's definitely racist. Yeah. Fred's Snowman, like Fred, certainly yeah. racist. His name's the Snowman, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what, Jerry Reed? He'd be MAGA. I hope not. No. Definitely mad. But I will never have to know. So it's great. <laughs> this is a, don't, this don't, is, ruin, don't ruin my life. I don't I don't want dead people to I like this recurring Trump. gig and or this recurring gag in the podcast of who would be MAGA. <laughs> who are no longer around, so <laughs> yeah. we can't ask them. Would this dead guy be MAGA? Probably. Jerry Reed, definitely MAGA. He's a good old boy for sure. Um all right, well, uh double feature. With Hooper? Or or with any of them. Hmm. I think I would stick with Hooper, though, just because it is the best. You know what? I'm tempted to pair it with a Richard Rush movie. Maybe 
the stuntman itself that might actually yeah. be the perfect one uh, with Peter O'Toole, uh, Steve Railsback, and the it does a similar kind of commentary on Hollywood, who is and is not supposed to be a star, make movies, etc. I mean, Freebie and the Bean would uh, pair well with any of the car movies that mm-hmm. you, you watch from Hal Needham. Um, you know what? I'm going to go with Hooper and the stuntman. That's just like perfect one-to-one a night of, of stuntmen. Like if you told me that that was playing at like the Ritz Alamo downtown on 35 millimeter would like run, not walk to buy a ticket. Yeah. For me, my original choice when I was thinking was I was going to do smoking the bandit with live and let die. Um, Ooh, girl. But my other one was then I was going to do with fast five because I thought another one would just about vehicular mayhem. That's when it really, that's the best of the series was that took it car crash. Fuck fest. Just, I mean the last, the last 30 minutes of just the, the Rio de Janeiro race chases is, is fucking mind blowing. But I actually decided to go with, um, Jackie Chan's super cop, um, interesting just because I, it was interesting to see them together, not really together, but in cannibal run. Um, and you have two, maybe not Bert and Jackie, but Hal and the kind of Jackie films, they're, they're both very playful. Um, they definitely both respect the stunt world as well. Sure. They both also in the end credit sequences. Now one is about the jokes. One is about, Hey, here's how we almost fucking, died. here's how, yeah. you know, and the here's one how we destroyed our bodies. Here's the one, you know, the one in police story where he goes down the, um, the, the pole in the mall with oh, all the God, lights yeah. and you're like, he almost fucking died or, or the broken foot in uh rumble in the Bronx. Yeah. Um, oh, that one, that's the one on the hovercraft, right? Yeah. That's yeah. rough. When he jumps onto it and shatter, it basically shatters his foot. Um, but super cops easily my favorite Jackie Chan movie. And I think it has that really, Holy shit! What and this 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 respect for upping the ante, and it's definitely made by people who've been doing it for a while. Sure, and it's made by people like, hey, how far can we push? I mean, this and who like honestly like Hal Needham, who was uh, before he was directing, ran his own stunt company called yep. Stunts Unlimited. Literally had an office in the Paramount building that he even says Paramount didn't even know he existed, but we did all the stunts for their movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've you know very much, and I think. There, especially Super Cop Two, has a lot more car stuff, right? Than a lot of the other Jackie Chan stuff. I mean, I think on the train alone of her Michelle Yao actually jumping onto the top on that dirt bike. Um, I'm also thinking about what would I like to watch back to back, and I think that'd be a great Saturday afternoon matinee. Oh, double, sure, double feature. Both are very fun movies. Also, we never really commented upon in the Cannonball movies uh, the fact that Jackie Chan. Uh, Jaws from Bond are are basically racing together in the second movie. Oh, is that true? Richard Keel? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. He even puts Jackie Chan in a bear hug at one point. It's very strange. Oh, that's great. So. Last question. Yeah. Face melter. Yay or nay? Man, you know what? This is a tough one. For Hooper, right? For Hooper. Yeah, just Hooper. It borders on being one, but I don't think it is. I think it's too hangouty. I think it, it, uh, doesn't quite reach the levels of insanity that, that would warrant a face melter. And there's nothing totally outrageous, but again, 
It doesn't meet the criteria of a face melter. That doesn't mean it's not a fucking awesome, yeah. mind-melting movie. It just, you know, isn't quite there yet. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think that Smoking the Bandit, the first one, is close to a face, closer to a face melter because it's more straight action. Um, mm. That's just, that's how I, I, I think if you showed it to someone. That's just me. That's just what I like. Butter in my ass and lollipops in my mouth. <laughs> but I, I would agree with Hooper. I don't think quite qualifies because it well it definitely is more plot heavy um and has i think like again more of the nuance and more of like the arc for hooper and 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 sally field's character as well but again i think it's a better movie than a lot of films that may are face melters (laughs) um sure you know it's just it's really well put together and and it's funny because bert I don't think he's even out to make face melters because he, his whole thing is easy going. Like yeah. it's supposed to be the opposite of face melter. Like you're supposed to just kind of vibe with it. Yeah. Drink beer, smoke weed, do whatever you want. Take your girlfriend to it. Probably get laid after. Cause she's turned on by Bert. You yeah. Know, like that's, that's it again. That's what Hal wanted to do. There's, I think there's a relentless factor that goes into being a face melter yes. that this movie does not own. Like hard, it, it, we always bring up hard target yeah, because that was the first uh, face melter. I, I think on our whole yeah. show um, that like that movie is relentless. It doesn't, it doesn't stop. It, it drags you through the mud. It's ridiculous. It destroys too. you and it's utterly out of its mind where this is just totally different. It's like, Hey man, you want to hang out? You want to, want to chill? You want some cores? Like, let's do it. And also, we're going to do some stunts, and they're pretty crazy. You know. Yeah. That's fine. Absolutely. You know, there's room for everything. And I, I love Hooper more than I love most movies. So, you know. Anyway, Martin, this is the last uh, episode of 2021, we've determined. Yes, it is. And I got to tell you, hell of a first year. It's been well, a lot of fun, man. Yeah. Only going to get better next year. Only going to be even more secret handshake. More episodes, more writing, more interviews. hopefully more interviews. Yeah, we're, we're just going to lay it all out there, and we'll see all y'all for uh, year two. Stay tuned. It's hard to be